It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So Dave Eager, friend of mine, is here. Well, I mentioned um, he said that you uh, have affiliations with uh, you know Watchtower type thinking, but uh, I, I mentioned along the way that um, this doctrine of eternal hellfire, and I mentioned that um, I don't believe it's just for God to punish a finite sin with an infinite punishment. And so um, you'll notice that um, when we talk a lot about a lot of these subjects, I tend to take these middle positions that aren't discussed very often. And so I don't, I don't agree with the uh, traditional Christian view that, um, that God you know, punishes people all through eternity for their sins in this life. I hold to a middle position between annihilationism which is what the you know the Watchtower and the uh, Seventh Day Adventists would believe in. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of Christian terminology that people that are not quote unquote Christian are not familiar with, you know, because the Watchtower uses different terminology. But um, that's what Christians call the view that the Watchtower and Seventh Day Adventists hold to, and also like Christadelphians. Have you ever heard of a Christadelphian? I have not. <laughs> okay. Well, they, um, they're a 19th century uh, religious sect that has um, a remarkable a number of commonalities with uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, they called Jehovah's Witnesses Bible students originally when they had Pastor Charles Taze Russell. You know, they weren't called Jehovah's Witnesses back then. But anyway, I hold to a middle position. Uh, I, I actually believe that there's a literal hell and uh, like the Roman Catholic Church, but I, I don't I don't believe it's eternal. I, I believe that uh, I actually believe that creation is eventually dissolved, and uh, so that would mean that because hell is a created place, it would be, uh, be dissolved too. So we were talking about that well, in the background. Why do you believe that um, hell is a is a literal place? I, I don't I don't know if that's really been um, if that's really discussed in the Bible. I think it was more well, that has to added do- on by. Catholic Church to scare people. Yeah, or that has to do with Roman police. That has to do with a large. That has to do with a larger subject called cosmology. Uh, that the Watchtower. You know what cosmology is? Not really. I haven't heard. Okay, that has to do with. That has to do with the structure. The structure. The structure of reality. Okay, you know the big picture. Um everything and how God formed it you know the stars the sun and the moon heaven and uh, the underworld but you have to understand in the ancient world uh, and this would be true in a Judeo-Christian tradition up until the time of the Protestant Reformation uh, people believed that there there was a there was a literal underworld it was a cavernous region it had different compartments 
you can see where the Greeks talked about, you know, this lower compartment of Hades called Tartarus, and they yeah, believed that, that the Titans there, you know, were being punished. You, are you familiar with that? Yes. Not 100%, okay. but I'm familiar a little bit with um, Greek beliefs, um, similar to the Romans, they just changed the names around. I always thought that that the that um the Hades that was talked about in those religions actually are what gave birth to the idea of a hell in you know some Christian religions. Yeah, but see, there's a problem there because hell and Hades are two completely different things. That, that, that Christians confuse those. The primary reason they do is because um of a mistranslation of the King James Bible. What the King James Bible is doing, it, it mistranslates it, it consistently mistranslates the word Hades hmm. as hell. And hell is a completely different subject. And where do you get that, that idea from? Now, which which I, I idea is that, um, that the word, that hell and Hades, I, I always looked at them as being synonymous. I, I'm, I'm aware that the English language is somewhat of a weak language compared to other ones, and that many words can't really translate over correctly, but I always thought they were just you know, um, similar terms for each other. Well, no, that that actually comes from, it, I mean, it's actually a fact that you can prove that the King James is actually translating the Greek word Hades as hell. And that's that's a mistranslation. I mean, that that's an actual fact. And you can look up the word, you know. But, I mean, I'm trying to look at the bigger picture. So, um, in the ancient world, and this is another fact. I mean, there's no scholars that disagree with this. Um, they... They, all these different civilizations, you know, they had basically, well, not basically, that's what they had. They had a three-tiered a cosmos. You know, they had a heaven, and they had a, uh, they had this underworld, which was always a literal place. And, okay. uh, and, and then they had this middle existence, which is what we call Earth. And they all believe these things. I'm, th- I'm, I'm focusing right now on the underworld. You see, so... Okay. I mean, if you you're going to go against that traditional view, I mean, the Hebrews had the same thing. I mean, you could you could disagree with that. It said, you know, they disagreed with the rest of the pagans or something like that. But um, you'd have to be able to prove that kind of thing because there's a lot of evidence in the Bible. For instance, when the you know it talks about in the New Testament, it uses the word Tartarus. And so what what you know what uh, Peter needs to do, he needs to let the reader know that you know well we don't believe in the pagan view of Tartarus. But he never does that, just like with the word demon. You know, they have the word daemon. And, uh, I mean, to a, to a significant degree, uh, the Christian view of, uh, of a demon is, it has a lot of commonalities with, with the Greek concept of uh, the daemon. The same thing with, the, you know, the word Hades. And where does he come out and actually tell you? Because, you know, the doctrine of soul sleep, Sleep, um, that's largely based, maybe you can agree with me, it's largely based on the Old Testament, not the New Testament. I mean, you, you have what's called proof text, where people try to use to prove these things. And if you make a list of them, you'll notice that most of these texts are actually from the uh, the Old Testament. Would you agree with me on that? Most of what texts are from the Old Testament? The texts that people try to use to prove what's called soul sleep. You know what soul sleep is, right? No, what is soul sleep? Well, that's the view that um, that when you die, you're, you don't go to an intermediate state. Um, you know, this is what Jehovah's Witness believes, so this would be your view, I'm assuming. 
Okay, the traditional Christian view based on uh, Luke 16 yes. is that in the intermediate state, the soul descends. It moves from point A to point B. As it talks about in the book of Ecclesiastes, it actually descends into the underworld and then it goes into uh, what <clears throat> Jesus talked about um, in Luke 16 would be Abraham's bosom. Now, there's, there's a rational reason to believe this kind of thing. If you go back to the book of Ecclesiastes, if you look at Ecclesiastes 12.7, he says that um, you know when the, when, when, when the body dies and goes into the ground, it says that the spirit returns to God who gave it. The spirit returns to God who gave it. So the, the spirit is going up because in the ancient world, they had a clear concept of up and down. You know, earth was down and heaven was up. So the spirit is going up and it's going back to God with, with who it originally resided. Okay? So if that is true, how can you take the soul and, and deny that it's going down? Because the spirit is going up. And so that if you're going to interpret the text consistently, you're going to have to have the soul as a literal thing that's descending. It's going down, the spirit's going up, the body's going into the grave. Now this is the concept that man is a tripart being. Do you have a problem with that? He's made up of three different components. I've heard similar to that before. I should also note that um, I do have a in his background, but I'm not an active member of you know, that religion. Just, just so I don't speak for all of them, but I, I am familiar with, with their with the beliefs and teaching. Yeah, so you're not in good standing with the Watchtower Society. I, I won't say I'm in bad standing. I haven't been like I'm just inactive. I haven't really been active with them for a number of years. Okay. Um, I haven't been. I, I'm not excommunicated or disfellowship or anything. Just okay. Not really active. You know, I'm sure that's my my parents, and I guess actually most of my family are actually Catholic. But um, I'm sure my parents would, would would wish I was more active. But you know, mm -hmm. so. but um, as far as what you're saying, so the belief really isn't that the soul or the spirit is uh, when it when it goes back to to God. It isn't that it's like a separate piece of you. It's basically, you know, it, it's believed that it's the power that gives you life so it's not really like as I looked at it as being a conscience um, a conscience part of you that leaves you if that uh -huh. makes sense to you now mm -hmm. I understand that, that most of Christians believe something a little bit different but in their sense of it it isn't a, a, you know it isn't um, a part of you that, that, that you're aware of what's going on around you you know mm -hmm. it, it's looked at that um, that you're here just physically with your body and if your body dies then you die and mm -hmm. you know you don't remember anything or you don't know anything after you die mm -hmm. now you have the possibility of you know coming back to life but there is no other part of you that's <laughs> sorry there is no other part of you that um, exists in any other type of entity well how, how do you explain how do you explain in Ecclesiastes twelve seven where it says that the spirit returns to God who gave it how do you explain that Ecclesiastes 12.7 uh-huh I have to look it up but um it's looked at as the spirit isn't it isn't 
basically what, what it's looked at is the spirit is um, your life force or what, what allows you to live. So what it's basically saying is that your your life force is no longer with you, so you're not alive anymore. It's not that it's a conscious part of you, though. But um, okay, if you look at the text yeah, there. I'll, I'll look at it. I, I wrote it down. Uh, I have a Bible in front of me, but yeah, I know, but ahead. it says that the uh, you got you got to ask yourself this question: Where was the where was the spirit before the body was was formed? Because the it says it says right there in the text it says it was with God. You see that? Um, I don't have it in front of me, but it does sound familiar. Hmm. I, I've seen it in other parts of. You know, well, this other... this is where every this is where everybody gets confused because what it's talking about is a state of what's called preexistence, which neither Christians or Jehovah's Witnesses believe in. Yes, that's confusing to people, but that's what it's saying because it was with God before it entered the body. Okay. We don't believe that, so we go. Well, that's not true. But look at the text again. <laughs> It came from God and goes back to God. That's that's the simple concept that you want to kind of wrap your head around. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I'm writing this down. Um, it, it's interesting. Uh, I have to look at that scripture a little bit more and some of the other ones that um, related to that scripture. Mm-hmm. What was the name of this church you said that was in the 1600s? Christadelphians? Yeah, they don't call themselves a church. I'm not sure what they call themselves. Uh, yeah, Christ. It's kind of like the word Philadelphian, but Christ at the beginning. You could find it on Wikipedia. Okay, I could spell yeah. it out. You know, the word, the word Christ, uh, and then the word A, and then D-E-L, and then uh, Elphian. Okay, I got it. Yeah. If you put that in Google, it will correct it for you, you know, if it's not exact. <laughs> Yeah, you don't have to learn, you don't have to spell correctly anymore. You can just get yeah, you know, get four out of ten letters right, and it'll look it up for you. Right. You can you can you can read your mind. Yeah, anyway, anyway, uh, Lewis, I want you to feel comfortable talking with me because uh, when I talk to uh, you know Jehovah's Witnesses that are in good standing with the Watchtower, uh, believe yeah. it or not, this this tends to surprise everybody, but um, we get along really well. And uh, they usually have a big smile on their face. The same thing happens when I talk to Mormons. <laughs> that surprises people. The Mormons are smiling. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what happens. Well, I mean, well, either way, I think the good thing is that you know more people, more people need to actually do more research and, and look into the Bible more. Yeah. Um. Because a lot of people just take the word of what someone else tells them without actually questioning anything or saying, hey, that doesn't really make any sense. You know, so more importantly, it's, you know, I I think they're happy or everyone's happy in general just to see that someone's making an effort of actually trying to, you know, understand what's going, what they see instead of just, you know, yeah, just, just accepting what's given to them. Well, I make it clear that I'm I'm interested then uh, in them on a, on a personal level. I, I'm I'm really that's a big emphasis with me, and they also um, it's enjoyable for them to um, interact with someone who understands their belief system because most people don't. Because I've spent a lot of time studying what's called comparative religion, 
Now, most Christians that have done that kind of thing, they get into what's called this, it's, it's, it's called proof texting or, or you know, uh, scripture hurling where you're, you know, you give one scripture, the other guy gives a scripture, you go back and forth and you basically get in an argument, you know, and yeah. you go around and around and, um, usually that doesn't accomplish a lot because, um, most of the time the two parties are not really listening to each other in my opinion, although they would, they would probably deny that because, People always want to say, I'm listening, I'm listening. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think that that's just most arguments in general. <laughs> but yeah. especially when, when it comes to religion, I think when most people come to have a religion, a religious discussion, well, the, 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 everyone's goal is, I want to make the guy believe what I believe. And, and their, their goal isn't really, I want to understand what he's trying to say, or his belief, or look at it from a different perspective. It's more, what can I do to convince them of whatever I'm saying is right? Because, you know, in their mind, their belief is correct no matter what you say. And they, they want you to believe it as well. Right. And that's generally yeah. what happens. So no one's actually listening to each other. Yeah. So is there a, uh, is there a lady called Jackie Bailey here on the call? Uh, that's my mother. And, but oh. the, the, I asked them to mute their connection because I believe they're eating. Okay. But would you like to talk to her? Hey. Hey, well, you could ask your her mom, that man. if she wants to talk to me. Sure. <laughs> Go ahead, yeah. Lewis. Sure. Hey, Lewis? Hey, your mom listens to you also? Uh, yeah, I invited her to listen. Does she like these type of discussions? Well, or they're Christians also. Uh, you know, lifelong Christians. They've been, uh, they worked in administration and teaching in Christian school. So, probably. Okay. So, do they attend a congregational church, Robert? They do, um, Sierra Madre, California. Uh huh. All right. I'm uh, texting her on the side, so. Well, yeah, I'm assuming it must be a relatively conservative uh, congregational church. It is because, like I said before, I mean they have uh, had a lot of problems with being, you know, "quote unquote" liberal historically. Okay. I mean, by anyone's estimation, I mean, even people within that congregation or that denomination themselves would acknowledge that. Okay. Well, well Dave, I was real curious, what actually made you decide to, you know, to study this subject more in depth? Most people really don't look into it. Most people look at it as something that's very confusing, and I'm just not even going to bother look into it. Uh, so looking, into, looking into what specifically? Um, religion, origin of everything, stuff like that. Christianity. Mm. Like, well, um, did you have a very, a very religious background as a child, or is it that you didn't have anything at all, so you decided to look into all of it? And just, no, I was growing up uh, in a, in a uh, liberal uh, Episcopalian family. That's what they call them in America. You know, the Anglican uh, Church, the Church of England. They call them Episcopal okay. Church. Yeah. And I was an altar boy every Sunday. Uh, twice I did two different services, and um, I would refer to that as you know apostate Christianity. You familiar with that term, apostate? Yes. But I I, I do believe. Well, we we run into uh, terminology problems because you know you're 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 used to uh, or you're more comfortable with terminology from the Watchtower, and uh, Christians use different terminology and even the word Christian is a bit of a problem 
because um, I mean, you, when you were in the Watchtower, I mean, like everything was going good. I mean, did you acknowledge that you were a Christian, or did you say that um, Christians were someone other than Jehovah's Witnesses? What, what did you believe? Um, I mean, because the word Christian is in the Bible. I mean, you know, how can you say yeah, you're not yeah, a Christian? Well, yeah, they, the term Christian is used, but, you know, when you look at people to other religions who claim to be Christians, they're not quite looked at as being Christian. Because the term Christian, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses are very, very literal when it comes to the Bible. Everything is strictly from there and nothing else. If it says this is what happened, this is what happened. There's no, um, um, you know, a, a lot of other, a lot of other, Christian organizations add a lot to it. Uh huh. You know, all the major ones have added, you know, either pagan celebrations or other ideas. They've allowed themselves to be. In. There's a lot of these these different ideas to come into their to their organization or to their beliefs, and they've adopted them as their own. Like mm -hmm. pretty much every single holiday that, that you have right now. Right. Or just or um, just many other concepts that. Um, you know, because, because I believe when when Christianity was first, I guess when it was first building and becoming stronger, you know, a few hundred years ago, what many people did when they were trying to when they were trying to recruit or trying to convert other people was they found it easier to just adopt the other people's I guess um, beliefs and try to twist it a little bit into their own, so it made the transition easier. Mm -hmm. And so, Joe Witnesses look at it like um, you have to try to shed all those other ideas that have 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 crept into Christianity and look strictly at what the Bible says, you know. Mm -hmm. And that, that's why a lot of people look at them as being fairly odd because many of their beliefs and ideas don't really fall in line with, you know, um, other Christian organizations. So they look at themselves as being. You know, the term is used as they look at themselves as being a revival of the original Christian congregations that, you know, the ones that, um, that, um, they wrote about later on. And, um, the ones that, um, what's that guy's name? Peter? No. The one that. Anyway, yeah, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses is one, is one of many, uh, you know, religious groups that they hold to uh, what's called a restorationist view of Scripture. I actually hold to that view myself. That's what it's called. When you when you said you know revival, that's what it's called. <clears throat> they believe, uh, like I believe, that um, at some point, there's quite a few groups that believe this, by the way. Um, that you know they. They fell away from the um, apostolic teachings. Oh, uh, Lewis just dropped out. Are you there, uh, Did he? Robert? Okay. Yeah, he, he, he'll probably be back. Let's see. Let's give him a call here. Hopefully it wasn't intentional. No, I don't think no, he's, 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 he's not that type of guy. <laughs> cool. Yeah, it looks like my phone went into some kind of battery mode where we cut everything off. That'll happen. Uh, uh -huh. Yeah, so... They don't, they don't look at other organizations as being Christian. They only look at themselves as really being like real Christian. Right, you know? right. That's important to, to get out on the table initially because it kind of causes some confusion. I mean, so you don't have a problem with the uh, 
you know the word Christian applying it to yourself or them but it it's kind of odd to most people because they don't use the word Christian and yet they acknowledge themselves to be Christian so it does create some confusion because they call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses and they didn't originally call themselves that correct? Yeah that's correct the name has um, it's changed a, a couple times over the past 150 years or so whenever whenever um What's his name? The judge's name. Well, we're talking about uh, Rutherford was the second president of the Watchtower. We're talking about Charles Russell, Pastor Russell. He called. They were called Bible students back then. Remember? Yeah, something like okay. that. And sometimes some people call them like Russellites. I believe also. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah. An odd thing was one of the um, one of our presidents was 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 affiliated with them, but then he I guess he just became inactive and was voted as president. I forgot which one. Well, I'm going to ask you this real quick. I'll go back to your question. But are you know what a generational uh, Jehovah's Witness is? That, that's somebody who was basically born into the movement. You know, their parents were uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Are you a generational Jehovah's Witness? I am not. Oh, okay. um, my, you know, my mother and father were uh, were originally Catholics. And yeah, oh, that's right. You told me that, yeah. And I believe it's when... And, they, I guess, were considered generational Catholics, but they weren't very strong in in um, in that religion. I think it was after my father left the military that you know he started talking to them when he came around more, and he decided to to um, to join them. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I, I think those who are a little generational, a lot of their family are also Jehovah's Witnesses, and they support each other and the idea and that um you know in the teachings and beliefs but you know like for instance in my case um because my parents were the ones that first decided to become Jehovah's Witnesses a lot of the family our family on both sides kind of looked at us kind of odd and it kept kind of kept us at a distance mm-hmm. know, like you know they're so it's a little bit different mm-hmm. but um why do you notice something different about those who are were born into it as opposed to those who have I guess convert it later on. Uh, do I notice a difference? Yes. Uh, not necessarily. Okay. Uh, so, sometimes it's a good thing to not be a generational uh, Jehovah's Witness because um, you have more zeal. Because you just kind of there's a tendency there's a human uh, tendency to kind of accept, uh, accept your environment. But if you lived a very sinful life and you made uh, you know significant changes from that. Uh, a lot of times that can uh, result in a person that's more zealous, you know, yes, for biblical. I guess, yeah, I guess because that person led led a more um, led a life that was, I guess, more sinful and caused more problems. And then, you know, looking at saying you can look at it and say, um, if I I'm avoiding all the problems I had in the past because I'm living a cleaner life. Uh huh. Yeah. So that might, that might make you more zealous. Well, you know, when you're born into something, um, whatever it may be, say say if you're the son of a king, uh, you tend to take things for granted. That's human nature, you know? Yeah, that's the point. Or if, if you're born with just someone born into a wealthy family, yeah. as opposed to someone that owned it or got it later on in life, yeah. Appreciation. So it's interesting your parents were, uh, were Roman Catholic because in some respects, Roman Catholicism is kind of like 
at least uh, I, I would say in the mind of a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses is kind of the antithesis of the Watchtower, almost like an opposite, the opposite extreme. And uh, are you aware that over fifty percent of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are former Roman Catholics? Have you ever heard about that? I'm not familiar with that statistics, but you know I would believe it, and that pretty much is true. That you know they don't actually talk about other religions, um, other Christian religions by name, or uh-huh. say they don't ever say like you know Baptists are this way or Catholics are this way. But you know, from looking at their beliefs, I would say that Catholics tend to be the furthest away from what um, what is tradition, what is you know Joe Witness teachings, because uh-huh. you know, they have they have the Pope. One man on earth, everyone has kind of looks to, or you know, all their beliefs about um, heaven, hell, how you can, I guess, you can pay your way, kind of, when you when you do something wrong, pay you to get your get rid of your sins. Yeah, parents. You know, so they, yeah, they look at it as being the complete other side of what a Christian is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, it doesn't really surprise me. But well, yeah, they, don't, they don't actually use those terms. They don't actually talk about other religions or what their actual beliefs are. They just kind of refer to them all as, um, I guess, um, worldly people or, um, I guess, people that claim to be Christians. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses have always had a strong emphasis upon uh, Scripture. Uh, they yep. didn't, you know, they didn't develop their own translation until. Um, the late 1940s and 1950s, depending on whether you're talking about the New Testament or the complete Bible. And uh, originally they used, um, you know, the King James Bible, and then they began using the uh, 1901 uh, American Standard Version. But the the Roman Catholic Church, traditionally, is the exact opposite. I mean, not only did they take the Bible away, but, I mean, traditionally, you know, as far as the so-called laity, the people in the pews... They have de-emphasized scripture consistently, right, right on down the line. Yes, we, we all and, know and this, that, and that's probably why many Catholics convert over is because, you know, they're probably, you know, if if the if a Christian is supposed to be based on the Bible, they look at it as you know why is it that it's being taken from me, and why do I have to believe your interpretation from it, you know, especially mm-hmm. during that time period where you know, you, you could get in major trouble if you even found with the Bible. You, you know, this is back, I guess, during medieval medieval times or something. Yeah. Um, and so, you, you kind of don't, no one actually trusts anyone that says, just believe what I tell you, you're not allowed to look at it for yourself. But then uh-huh. when someone actually says, you know, I'm going to teach you what it actually says, it, you know, it, 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 it makes you more I guess you, you have more um, more faith in that person or that belief or that religion when mm-hmm. it seems when, when it's when things are actually you know according to them or, or to yourself are proven or explained better. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, obviously everyone knows that. I'm not sure if anyone here is a Catholic, but there's a lot of a lot of holes in what they're saying. You know, a lot of things that are major uh, contradictions to each other. They just don't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the uh, Roman Catholic Church is the largest, uh, quote-unquote, Christian denomination. And so uh, just because of the sheer headcount, because there's so many people, uh, and you have a lot of generational uh, Roman Catholics going back a number of generations, um, you have a lot of potential converts there. 
So if you go door to door, um, there are people there that are that can be potentially converted, and they have never been confronted with a, a strongly biblical view with an emphasis on scripture. And um, a lot of people, um, you know, like to put Roman Catholics in a box, but there's a lot of people there, and so what actually happens is that some of these people realize for the first time, hey, you know, the Bible's important, and um, I've never actually heard anyone use the Bible the way that you're using it, and I could say some other things too, but that's why they're attracted to Jehovah's Witnesses. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yes, and uh, you know, then also the point that they don't seem to have some kind of, um, I guess, they don't seem to have another agenda or like an earthly agenda. Like, you'll see especially with, I don't want to see Baptists, but a lot of other Christian organizations, seem, they seem to be out for financial gain, or for or for um, for fame, or just to get recognition on earth, and it, or here, but Dormises tend to be, they're trying to shy away from that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. You know, um, I knew one, one new thing they do, I, they've probably been doing this for a couple of decades now, is um, they no longer go with having like a a president or one person that leads them mm-hmm. you know because I after they actually formed um I guess a hundred years ago whenever in order to be recognized by America you had to be operating under like a corporate structure you had to have a president a vice president and a secretary and all that and so they start getting they start you know giving those names out to eat to like certain people and you know people were like oh the president's this person but now they're trying to do away with that and to say it's the governing body, uh-huh. or you know, uh, the collective or the group of elders came up with this idea, because it seems that compared to other religions, they're not for for self gain. So uh-huh. it's a combination of, you know, it looks like these people don't, don't actually want anything from you, except for, I guess, your participation in, you know, their in their in their studies and. They do use the Bible a lot more, you know. Mm-hmm. They do go into history a lot more, and you know, try to prove what, what's what's being taught as compared to you know other religions. You know, like you said, that um, try to remove the Bible from from all of it. Uh huh. So it's the complete opposite. Yeah. Uh, what I what I like is um, you know the emphasis on the word elders um, because that's a biblical concept, and you'll actually see because most Christian churches are oriented around these would be the Protestant ones, oriented around you know, a pastor, which I don't believe is a biblical term it's mistranslated and it should be um, the word shepherd which it's translated other places um, in these same Bibles and a lot of people don't know this but um, it's never actually used in the singular, the only place it's used, um, like in the King James Bible, it's used in the plural and uh, but anyway, you know, the the, uh, the epistles are addressed, you know, to elders. But I, I actually hold to a different view on that because um, we're talking about the subject of um, the church government, which scholars refer to as ecclesiology. And uh, believe it or not, I actually hold to uh, an, what's, what's called an Episcopalian form of church government. There's different forms of it, but that would be like the Anglican Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, it has to do with authoritative bishops. Now, there's a reason why I believe this, okay? Um, I don't... You have to understand here that 
the concept of a kingdom hall and a church building is is not found in any in scripture anywhere. Are you familiar with, familiar with this? Um, I understand what you're saying. You know, yeah, the Bible does say anytime there's a group of believers, you know, together, my spirit will be with them. So, um, I, but I, I do believe that they did have like meeting places, but you know, they wasn't really given a title. I don't know if it was ever given like an actual title, you know, and a lot of, and a lot of stuff that Joe Winston's do is because they're trying to. You know, they're trying to be recognized for, I guess, legally. You know, uh-huh. in, order, in order to be an actual religion in certain countries, you have to be structured a certain way. Mm-hmm. And so, well, the Jehovah's know, Witnesses yeah, are very yeah. Jehovah's Witnesses are very fond of uh, pointing out that they base their beliefs solely on the Bible. Would you agree with that? Yes. Okay. I mean, you mentioned that earlier, right? Yes. Well, the point with that is the Bible says that you know you have to follow Caesar's law, and so. You know, they structure certain things a certain ways, and I'm sure it might be a, a little different in other countries, but it's just so that the core belief is still the same and it still operates the same, but they do certain things just so that they can, um, you know, they can uh, abide by the legal rules and stuff. Right. If that makes, it makes sense. So. Yeah, that makes but, sense. That has, to do with, uh, that has to do with Romans chapter 13. Okay. Okay. So anyway, um, what I'm talking about specifically is, um, you know, the church building or the kingdom hall, and also the synagogue. We got three different concepts because, um, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses would distinguish between a kingdom hall and, and a church building. They don't, they don't call it that. You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Sorry. Go so ahead. the, you know, the synagogue and the kingdom hall and the, um, the church building. Um, they're not found specifically in Scripture anywhere, as far as um, one specific reference point. Where is the Where is the command, you know, from uh, Jehovah to to do these things? Can you think of where the Scripture would be? You mean to build a building where everyone comes to worship together? Yeah. Not really offhand. I mean, throughout the Bible, it's just called it's just referred to as a congregation, but I don't think it actually gave. It. I don't remember offhand if the actual building or a place they met was given a, a particular name. Well, uh, I do know that when, Yeah, that has to do. Huh? That. You, could, you could in the English translations that could be like an. Uh, a, that's a term that was actually used in the Old Testament, but in the in the in the New Testament, it, the word is ecclesia. You know, being called out ones. But that has to do with the. Uh, they actually use that word and they mistranslate it in Christian uh, Bibles as the word church. And church can be more than one thing, so it's kind of confusing, because sometimes it means, you know, the Christian church or church building, or sometimes it means people, so it means different things in different contexts. And uh, it might actually be a good idea to just leave that Greek word untranslated, (laughs) Uh, like the word Nephilim, because I think it actually communicates something better. But um, I'm just trying to illustrate that there's no specific text in the Bible where God said to, you know, build a synagogue. Or build a church building. Now, see if you can agree with me on this, okay? Um, I mean, Jesus acknowledged the synagogue, and he visited the synagogue, and he read out of the, uh, you know, the great scroll, and he used Isaiah 61 to appeal to himself that he was a fulfillment of that scripture. So, I mean, he was going along with the system. You know what I mean? He wasn't like, you know, 
being a quote-unquote quote is seen and living out in the wilderness somewhere and saying, well, you know, the, 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 the temple is all corrupt and I don't want to participate in that. He was working through the system, okay? But, yeah, um, right and so, you know, you look at the Apostle Paul and he was visiting the synagogues. He was doing the same thing. And he was, you know, preaching in the synagogues and proving uh, from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ, okay? But Jesus prophesied that the time is coming when they will throw you out of the synagogue. And that actually happened later on. And because um, initially the, the Nazarites or Christians, whatever you want to call them, they were tolerated. Because they had different Jews, uh, sects, they had different sects, you know, S-E-C-T-S groups. That's more of the biblical term. Um, they had different sects in Judaism, and they were tolerant of the Christian sect, even though they had, um, they, well, they had a different Messiah, you know. That was the big problem with them, but they were tolerated. And there was a time when they ceased to tolerate them. And so, would you agree with me that the early Christians met in the synagogue? I mean, you wouldn't have a problem with that, right? They met in the synagogue? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it sounds logical. You okay. know, if, if, if there were, many of them were, were had like a Jewish background, they were just, you know, it, it, there, I don't know if there's a, a period where they, you know, the separation between the Jews and the Christians didn't happen instantly. So I'm pretty sure that it was like an idea that was floating around that people were, were discussing amongst themselves that eventually started to lead toward a separation. So, you know, they probably they could have met in a synagogue. Well, actually, if you go to the book of James, I, I think it's James chapter 1, but it could be chapter 2. You actually have the word synagogue, which is uh, consistently um, not translated properly uh, in Christian Bibles because... Um, it it sounds funny. That's my theory. <laughs> you know, for instance, in um, in the book of Revelation, that same word is is translated, and I'm saying it's the same word in the book of James. So he's talking about you know James says when you come together, you know what I mean. But it's the word synagogue, you see. And so um, and he's writing you know to Jewish Christians. Uh, he he mentions that there in James one one. He he talks about the twelve tribes. It's clear that he's writing to Jews. And uh, but anyway, you know it's not that really important. What I'm trying to say that after that time, where did they meet? Okay, uh, they met in house churches. Um, a good example of that would be in the, the book of Second John. It's pretty obvious that he's talking because he's actually using the word you know home there. And uh, would you have a problem with that that they were meeting in house churches? No, I, I believe in fact me, me and Joe just do that still nowadays. I um. Yeah, they still do it nowadays, and especially in like rural places and in foreign countries where they don't really have access to it. Because you know, the term Kingdom Hall, and you know, to them that's not the term that they use isn't really important or holy. It's just you know, it's just a place where they come to meet. But it's just I think that a lot of times for for legal purposes, they have to have an official title for the building. But uh -huh. you know, the that term isn't really a big deal to them, and, and also. They do recognize that some words might be translated incorrectly or mispronounced. Like, you know, no one's 100% sure how to, the proper way of pronouncing, you know, like Yahweh in the English language. But they say that, you know, it, uh, uh, try your best. This is our best guess is how it is that it's translated into Jehovah. And if you're a tad off, you know, it, it, you know, I'm sure he'll be understanding. You know, everyone's trying their best, but... You know, they do recognize that some words might not 
so many words don't get translated over correctly, especially in the English language. Uh huh. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, I, I'm pretty sure that many of them back then didn't meet in, in houses, and they still, you know, they still do to this day. But I know that um, Jehovah's Witnesses they they only actually meet at the Kingdom Hall, like maybe twice a week, and then once a week they meet at someone's house in smaller groups. Mm hmm. Well, one thing I like about Jehovah's Witnesses is that. Um, uh, their practices, as far as meeting together, are more compatible with first century Christianity because um, a lot of Christians, you know, they go to church and then if they go to like a Wednesday night service, it's like, wow, you know, we're really doing something special here. And obviously yeah. you can see there in um, in the early part of Acts, I mean, they were meeting daily, you know. Um, but it's not uncommon for dedicated uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, to meet three or four times a week, Correct. Yeah, I believe I believe um the common usually you meet three times a week. Um one is two two times for two hours and one time is for one hour. But mm -hmm. um you know, I my mother is from my mother's from Southeast Asia. And when I was a child and we went back to her country, they actually met one day a week for like four hours straight because the place we met at was um, so so far away that people could actually get together as often as they did over here. Uh-huh. But, but they do try to as much as possible to to meet like almost almost every other day. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, they kind of look at it like they're very aware that their beliefs are to completely different than what's you know, in the contemporary world, and that, and that they believe that if they're, that if they, they must kind of you know stay away, or they don't want to be influenced too much by the outside world. So the best way to avoid that is to try to, you know, associate with each other more than you know non-believers or other people, because then you know their ideas and habits, and will start wearing off on you. So they try and meet as much as possible, and even if it's not, even if it's not an official religious meeting, you know they kind of only hang out with each other. Right. Well, I actually believe in that kind of thing uh, to a certain degree. Remember, we were talking about that, uh, Robert. Yes. <clears throat> you know the concept of separation. Mm -hmm. Keep. I was talking about keeping your children away from uh, the children of unbelievers, which is a very difficult thing to do in a neighborhood. And that's the one thing that that's uh, I guess a, un a little unique about America is that um, compared to many other uh, maybe even most other countries, America is not at all does not have like a homogeneous beliefs. Um, everything everyone is a little bit different. You have different you have a different you have different cultures, different languages, different religions all mixed together. But you know, for instance, if you're in another another country. Everyone might have the exact same religion, or almost the exact same, mm -hmm. you know, belief on, on family and everything. So, you know, that would be a little bit here, or many countries like this. People find it easier if they separate themselves with just, you know, amongst themselves. So, you mm -hmm. know, it's easier for them that way. So, anyway, I was talking about the concept of a house church, and uh, you know, it's important to point out too that when. Uh, 
when Pastor Russell started out, I mean, he had these small meetings, and then they had uh, other groups, and that's basically what they were doing. They were having little study groups, right? Yes. And they didn't have kingdom halls yet, so they were actually following the biblical model. And, um, you know, there's a word that, um, like I said, there's a difference between, you know, traditional Christian, quote-unquote, um, traditional institutional Christianity, the terminology that we use, and uh, it's different than Jehovah's Witnesses because... Um, we tend to use the word heresy a lot traditionally. I don't see that used as much by Jehovah's Witnesses, but um, it's talking about a specific heresy in Second uh, John 7, and it says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. But anyway, it goes down. I'll skip a couple of verses. It says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. And see, um, and I'm saying, um, I'm agreeing with, you know, biblical scholars that um, when, when it says house, it's actually talking about a house church. See there? And uh, if you look at a good Christian uh, Bible commentary, when it mentions the elect lady in, in, in verse 1, and then it talks about the elect lady or the elect sister... Uh, in the last verse, that's actually kind of a, a metaphorical term or figurative term for the house church. That's, I mean, that's the, the majority view. You know, it's not talking about a specific woman, you know. And, uh, but uh, I think a lot of Christians get that confused. They would actually think that that's a Jehovah's Witness coming to their door. You know, don't let them in your house. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, when it says, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. I mean, I've done a lot of research on that, but that's why it's important to have the you know, kind of the historical context because it, it actually helps to uh, utilize that to interpret Scripture. Um, but no, that's not talking about someone that has different um, views uh, when, you know, when you open your door on Saturday morning and you've got a, you know, a Mormon standing there. And, you know, that doesn't mean you're supposed to shut the door uh, or not invite him in. It's not talking about that. It's talking about a house church, and it's actually talking about a specific one uh, in that uh, epistle there, you know. And so, but yeah, anyway, that's the concept of a house church there. So, okay. And so, anyway, um, I, I disagree with the concept of a governing body, even though they have uh, elders, is because um, in the uh, in, I'm not real big on uh, on. Uh, on bishops, as far as plural, okay, the concept of a plural bishop, because um, the scripture is kind of ambiguous about that. It, it can be translated as overseer, it depends on the translation. But what I would like to mention is something that you really don't hear people talk about, whether Jehovah's Witnesses or Christians, is in the early church, you have a, you have a different church model. And this has to do with church government, where you actually see that, um, that the Apostle James... Uh, and I'm going to say that he's a bishop, okay? But he had um, he was preeminent in the early Christian church because obviously, like Roman Catholics, they think that it has to do with Peter. And most, um, you know, uh, Protestant Christians they think that uh, Paul was the primary apostle. But if you look at the um, the important church council there in Acts 15, where they were actually determining. Uh, whether or not the quote-unquote Gentiles 
uh, should keep the you know the Torah, the law, the law of Moses, which is kind of an interesting subject in itself. Because why are they why are they doing that? Well, it's because there were Jews that were keeping it, and we don't talk about that in Christianity very much. They didn't say that was a bad thing. Uh, they kept right on keeping the law of Moses, and they never said don't do that. You know, in the we're talking about a church council here in Acts 15. Okay, so Peter was present there. And, uh, and Paul was present, and they suggested things, but James made the decision by himself. He actually found, uh, like, a pope, you know. Uh, the word pope means, it just means papa, you know, or father, or something like that. But he was a, he was a preeminent bishop, um, if you want to use that kind of terminology. Um, but he had, um, you know, superior power, so, um, I mean, he was, a ve- he was elevated above the rest of the apostles. This is kind of like a foreign concept to most people. But if you go back to the text, you have to read through it, and you'll see that he actually made the decision by himself. In other words, he considered, um, you know, their words, um, but he made the decision by himself. So that's what that is based on. So, I mean, you have... um, I I hold to what's called, you know, a local church-type government. And I, I, I... what I believe in is once that local church gets large enough, then you simply uh, you multiply that, and you actually never build uh, a church building. Well, this is the ideal model. You know what I mean? I'm trying to go follow Scripture very closely. But if we ask ourselves this question, uh, you know, technically speaking, is the concept of a kingdom hall or a, or a church building or a synagogue, is that found in, in Scripture as far as, you know, God ordaining that and the answer is no okay so right away we've got a problem with um, with um, Judaism we have a problem with Christianity we have a problem with Jehovah's Witnesses um, you know because well, Orthodox Jews are a little bit different because they have supplementary texts and traditions but the concept that my my uh, <clears throat> my bu- belief is based solely on the Bible and there's many examples where you can easily undercut that and show that's that's not true, you know, because the concept of a kingdom hall is not is not based on scripture. That's a a tradition of man, and Jehovah's Witnesses would feel uncomfortable with that because when they talk about traditions of man, they're always talking about Christianity, and Christianity has many many traditions of man. I agree with that, but everybody has traditions, and we all need to recognize that, and uh, they're not all from. Uh, the Bible, you know, because well, I, I tend to, I, I tend to kind of pick on Christians a lot and point this out because I talk to a lot of Christians who claim that their beliefs are based on the Bible, <laughs> but obviously they're not because their their Bible itself is not based on the Bible. That's probably well, something you're, you're unfamiliar with. Go ahead. Whoa. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, and you know you have a point, but the way it's kind of looked at it is. It's more than just. It's more than just um, looking at the Bible. It's looking at the source of the Bible, and so the source of the Bible is supposed to be that it was inspired, you know, by by God. Mm-hmm. And so it's actually that the Bible has you know rules and it has historical value, but as time goes on, you know, especially amongst your witnesses, it's believed that 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 God is actively kind of guiding them toward what he wants them to do. So in that sense, there's going to be some things where are going to are going to kind of evolve from 
you know, from um, the exact exactly what happened in the biblical days. So, because mm-hmm. um, it started off as you know Jesus, and then it grew from the apostles, and then Christianity grew larger and larger. And so, you have to look at it as not really that. You know, when I say that they fall strictly from the Bible, what I mean is like you know certain things, like when it says, you know, you can't be gay. Isn't that called so, compromise? Huh? It's called compromise, yeah, I believe. Yeah, or some people try to change certain <laughs> things, like oh, women can be can be ministers now, or, um, you know, the way you treat each other is one thing, but the, I guess the beliefs grow as time goes on. You know, God says that I will, something says I will make um, as the end nears, I will illuminate the light better, so or something like that, where you can understand more and more. As you know, time goes on. So it's not really that, you know, it's not really looked at that they're adding to the Bible. It's more that, you know, more that God is kind of directing them. Uh-huh. You know, the Bible's where it started, if that makes sense to you. But the Bible's supposed to be inspired by God, so more than the Bible, you're supposed to kind of look toward God. And that's kind of where it's all based off of faith. Right. Well, the so, passage I mean, you're talking about there is is in the book of Proverbs, and I, I forget where, but it's it's the concept of new light that that the Watchtower governing body they get they get new light. I mean, they have acknowledged that they've made mistakes. You aware of that? But they get they get new light, fresh light. Right? Yes. Okay. I mean, yeah, progr- you know what? There's a concept. It's called progressive revelation. That's what it's called. Yeah, and and, and that's the part that makes them a little bit different. Than, than other religions that they actually will come out and say that you know our understanding of this topic has changed uh-huh. you know they'll say like, you know like originally it was okay to like smoke cigarettes and you know do certain things as time went on they're like we don't think you should smoke anymore we should all kind of stop that or you know I, I think that they used to they used to also celebrate like Christmas and a lot of major holidays but as time went on they start looking more and more and say like we should stop doing this so uh-huh. it's more you know it, it changes a little bit because of that, because their understanding, you know, because the governing body, the concept is that they're directed, you know, from from um, you know from God or to, from the Holy Spirit, and so they understand things, you know, better. Right. As time goes on. Well, they you know, actually claim. Aspects, yeah. They actually claim to be a prophet. It's you know the it's a like a collective prophet. You understand that concept. I've never heard that term before, but you know it, it sounds logical. You know, it, you know the way it's described. You can, I guess you could describe it as that. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, so as far as you know, so some of the terminology is used nowadays could potentially change ten, twenty years from now. You know, mm-hmm. as time as time went on, because you know another thing was back in you know forties, fifties, and sixties. They're, they kind of had segregated, you know, congregations, uh-huh. and it wasn't it wasn't an official rule they had, but it's kind of looked at that, you know, people might have a problem if they see them all meeting together. So it wasn't that one was more inferior than the other, but this time when it's like, are right, we need to try to stop this more and more? We need, mm-hmm. we need to, you know, more, um, you know, we just do away with certain things, and that's just one thing that. You will never see another religion do is actually admit or be wrong with this point. They're trying and they're trying and 
change their definition. Like the Catholic Church is now trying to say that hell isn't actually a literal place anymore. It's just, you know, how you feel because God's not with you. When people start, <laughs> they're saying that hell is is a personal torment because of the absence of God, not knowing in your life or something. Because you know, so many people question him. Like, where does it say this in the Bible? Where does it say you get burnt? Where does it say you can do this and that? And then you know, they try to move away a little bit where they say, all right. It's not actually based on the Bible, it's just more tradition. Uh-huh. So, I mean, yeah, the concepts are going to change. And again, well, that's actually, all based off of, off of faith. If you want to believe, you know, that it should change or not change. You know, do you have faith that, you know, these people are being guided by God? Uh, well, I believe in uh, uh, progressive revelation. And okay. uh, you basically have to have that because... Um, if you're not infallible, then you're going to be wrong about certain things. And so if you're wrong about certain things, that means you're going to be learning. And if you're learning, you're going to have progressive revelation. You know what I mean? Okay. If you're yeah. going to, uh, unless you're just going to have a static state, a lot of times in Christianity, it's presented as if we know everything. They don't really come out and say it like that, but it's kind of like an undercurrent and and there's people are not really motivated to go out and seek anything significant that they don't already know. But um, I hold to a restorationist view, and that's the view of the Watchtower Society, and it's also the view of uh, the uh, you know the LDS Church Mormonism. It's also the view of um, the Seventh Day Adventists. It's also the view of the Campbellite movement, if you're familiar with that, the Church of Christ, which they later split off into um, Disciples of Christ. Well, uh, do, do Mormons actually consider themselves to be Christians? Uh, in, a, in a qualified sense, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they would actually, I think, feel more comfortable with that term than Jehovah's Witnesses, in my opinion. Because I think that they look more toward, you know, this, this Joseph guy. I think that they said he was a weird incarnation of Jesus, well, or, or he came back, yeah. or... They're changing as well, um, but they... There's an agenda in uh, the LDS Church to present themselves as just regular Christians, and not to uh, emphasize the difference, the differences. They try to emphasize uh, the things they have in common now. They didn't used to do that. You know, in other words, they're in a nutshell. You know, we're just we're just Christians like you. You know, and I think this is done for like evangelization uh, purposes because a lot of people that join uh, the Mormon Church, that's what they believe. It's just a Christian denomination. Okay. Yeah. And well, on a tangent, one thing I kind of found odd was that when um, Mitt Romney was running for president, that there wasn't uh, more emphasis on people questioning the fact that he was a Mormon. Yeah. Yeah, people don't have a big of a problem with it as they used to. You know, I mean, Mormonism has a very strange past, and you have to do a lot of research. When you research, it just it just keeps coming and coming and coming. It's just one strange thing after another. You know? Yeah, they, they do have a lot of this odd things with them. I mean, their beliefs have changed, changed drastically. And I think a lot of times their beliefs actually changed because, um, not because. You know, in my opinion, not because they were evolving because they were understanding things better. I think their beliefs were changing because they were kind of coming under too much um, 
I guess they're, the outside world is looking at them too strangely. Like, you know, mm -hmm. um, multiple wives or the belief about the origin of certain races. I think that it wasn't that they they didn't want any more trouble and they're like, okay, we're going to change our beliefs. Dave, how, yeah. how does the Bible address that issue of uh, multiple wives? Um, I'm going to surprise uh, I'm going to surprise Lewis on that, uh -huh. and uh, also any new Christian that's listening to this. Mm. Um, I've talked a lot about uh, culture uh, in the past, and I've mentioned it recently. That we're all basically products of our culture, and in Western culture. Whatever your belief system is, unless you're actually a polygamist, you have an inbred prejudice against anything having to do with remotely with polygamy. Whether you want to admit that or not, that's actually true. You, you don't have a, any kind of... Um, you have a negative view towards the subject. Okay? So... I've talked about, you know, Christians who claim that their beliefs are based on the Bible. Okay? Well, the Bible is silent uh, on the subject of polygamy, in my opinion. I mean, you have to produce some evidence that this is not true. As far as um, any kind of admonition against it, there's actually an easy way to prove this. Um, and that's, that's the uh, related subject of, um, of concubinage, you know, having a concubine. And you will notice if you look at people not doing this um, because they just have a negative prejudice against it, that the Bible says precisely nothing that's negative against concubinage, which is obviously a form of uh, polygamy. There's there's no text in the Bible at all against this. So I've actually said that the best case that you could make is that we have lost scriptures hmm. that address this, and uh, they're gone because people firmly believe, well, I don't believe in concubinage, and I've actually said I don't believe in it either which would surprise people, but I can't base it on the Bible. So now we're off and running. But I, you know, we, we could go off on a different trail, and I explain that, Dave. You know, I've, I've done this before, okay? But um, there's only one text that you can use uh, or try to use against polygamy. I mean, well, you can, you can use, I mean, people try to use, you know, like um, Genesis uh, chapter, uh, what is it, chap you know, Adam and Eve, it must be a husband. He's talking about they will be one flesh. Well, that doesn't work because um, you have polygamy later, but the primary problem that Christians have is not thinking for themselves, but just um, repeating what they've heard. Now, you can tell that because they repeat this little phrase that they've heard somewhere, and they're not investigating the subject, and you can tell that because they're just repeating it. And here, here's the little phrase, okay? In the past, God used to wink at polygamy. Have you ever heard that before, Robert? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, those Christians are unfamiliar with the text where Nathan approached um, David, who had sinned with Bathsheba, and rebuked him, and he said, um, why did you... Um, he said, I would have gave you even more wives if you would have asked for me. I'm not sure where that's at. Well, first of all, he acknowledged that he gave him these wives. You'd have to look up the text. Just trust me on this. But you can look it up. And, and uh, I have no idea where it's at. But you know, I'm 100% certain this is what it says, basically. It has two different concepts there. First of all, God acknowledges that, that he gave him his wives. Okay? And secondly, it says, and this is the main thing, he says, I would have gave you even more if you had asked me. 
So you, you didn't need to take a wife of another man. And, uh, and there's no question here that God is advocating polygamy. You've got to have put your head in the sand, okay? And so another way to really enforce this concept is, is the, the, the principle of um, a Leverite marriage. And this is very important, okay, because a lot of people would think that a Leverite marriage has to do with the law of Moses, okay? Now, a Leverite marriage has to do with a concept that you, you have to marry your, um, your brother's sister if your brother dies, like in, in battle or something like that. Because in, in agrarian culture, um, you'll see this in the Book of Ruth, I mean, women, they didn't have any provision, you know, and that's, that's what was there for Ruth, so she wouldn't suffer from starvation, you know, there was, there was provision made in the law, you know. And so it's very important in that culture to have um, a husband. So you could, for survival purposes, and this is um, one of the things that the modern Christian mind is failing to recognize. There are, um, they usually think of sexual lust when they think of polygamy and, and, and the male, and that's an extremely simplistic concept. Anyway, what everyone needs to understand is the Leverite law existed before the time of Moses, you see? So you have this individual in the Bible called Onan. You ever heard of him? No. Because um, this is the primary text that Christians try to use to prove that masturbation is, um, you know, is, is a sin. Well, mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's not a sin. I'm just saying this is the number one text that they use. And uh, so you have this individual called Onan, and he... Um, you know, there's there's different views out there. Uh, one of them is that a, a marriage actually is just the result of sexual intercourse. Mm -hmm. Anything after that is just making it more official. And uh, the, the Bible actually appears to advocate that at, at some point. But anyway, um, can I attempt to uh, redeem myself really quick on that guy? Is is that the guy that spilled a seed upon the ground? Yes. Got it. Yeah. And his, his brother died, and so he was required by this law, this traditional law that was accepted. You, you know, we're, we're used to basing things on the physical text, you see. So it's like, where is it? Well, you know, it's just a foreign concept to a Christian mind because it's, where is it at in the Bible? You know, the Bible, they had no Bible. They didn't have a Bible <laughs> right. in the first century either. <laughs> the Christians <laughs> just think they did, okay, because the Bible was developed later. Because the Bible is the New Testament, Old Testament in a single, like, you know, book. That's what the Bible is, you know. If you don't have that, then you have a bunch of scattered manuscripts. Now, you can have a canon without a Bible. Um, you know, it's not all brought in one book, but uh, anyway. And so, uh, basically, he refused to consummate the marriage. That's why he spilled his seed on the ground. It wasn't like he was masturbating for pleasure. I mean, come on, you know. And uh, But anyway, what, did, what was God's response? Remember? Not good. You know what God's response yeah. was, Robert? No, I don't. I think God exactly. got angry. I, I remember exactly how get, it, yeah. he had like, he responded negatively to what happened. I'm assuming he was admonished, I guess. Well, he killed him. Oh, I guess so. He struck him down. Yeah, I believe that's what happened. Okay. Now, Christians believe that the reason that he did that is because he was masturbating. <laughs> hmm. Now, he struck him down because he violated the Leverite law. And back, see, he was refusing to basically do two things very, provide for this woman and he was also refusing to to uh he, you know he didn't want her to to bear his son you could surmise that from the text uh but that's god took this very seriously so you have to understand the big picture it's not improper to say that god slew him because he refused to practice polygamy 
Now, this is a problem because this is in total um, opposition view to the Christian view, who always looks at um, polygamy from a either very skeptical view or a very um, negative view. You know, it, when I say skeptical, I mean God tolerated, but you know, God didn't really approve of it. But He kind of well, that that can't be true because um, of what. Um, God said to David, so at the very least there, just based on that one text, you know, with Nathan, he would, you, the best case you could make there is that, well, God tolerated it with, um, you know, with the king, but, but not with the commoner. One thing that, there's a lot of things that Christians never talk about. This is what I point out. I mean, they just never do, um, because they never get there, okay? And so one of those things is, is that the ratio of females to males uh, in, in, in history, you recognize right away that I never heard about anybody talk about that. You know, and I'm talking about the Christian setting. You know, because everyone assumes that it's fifty-fifty, and I'm saying it's not. There is a significant um, uh, difference, uh, and there's um, there's more females historically. One of the ways to prove this is go to uh, Indonesia or Africa. You will actually see more females there. Now you have to develop theories. Okay, why did this happen? Okay. Probably, well, probably kill each other. <laughs> well, you have to come up with, you know, war, things like that, okay? Yeah, yeah. But see, if you're actually paying attention, I'm actually talking about the birth rate, see? I'm not talking about the head count, because the head count is different than the birth rate. There actually is more females being born. So if you're going to say that there's a 50-50 ratio, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to make up for that. So what you're going to have to do, you're going to have to scramble in order to salvage your 50-50 ratio and say, well, okay, it all balances out because in Western culture, uh, there's more males born than females because we already know in significant parts of the world where they have dense uh, population like Indonesia, they clearly have more female births. So I guess God must be making up for uh, somewhere else. But is he doing that? No, because these same people, they actually naively believe that there's approximate 50-50 in Western culture, and that's not true either. Now, I'm saying that um, this is very interesting because in Africa, I'm, I'm making the claim that God sends more f- female souls, however you understand that, you know, the soul and the origin of the soul like that. And I'm actually claiming that um, in, in Western culture, um, it's closer, you know, it's closer to being 50 I mean, it's not 50-50, but it's cl- it, it varies. And I'm saying that God is um, is behind all this. And... And the reason he does that is, I believe that um, this is a complex subject right now. But um, I don't believe that God approves of polygamy in Western culture, and I can't use the Bible to prove it. And I'll, I'll admit that. Okay. So, but the good thing about that is that you know everyone says, "Oh, that's good." You know, Dave doesn't approve of polygamy. Okay, that's why I want to get that on the table. I can't use the Bible to prove it, but. Um, um, you you have problems with polygamy. The, the obvious problem is um, if you take two women, then it's like you're taking, um, you know, obviously a potential a wife from another man. You see that, Robert? I mean, yes. everyone has to admit that. You know what yes. I mean? You would be, yes. So we naively assume that um, in the ancient world, because there was a 50-50 ratio, that there was a lot of men running around. Because you have to acknowledge that polygamy was practice, Okay. So there must have been a lot of men running around. They didn't have any wives at all. I'm saying that's a very naive assumption. But I'm, I'm, I'm proposing that there was actually a disproportionate number of females to males. And God was in control. It had, there wasn't a problem with that kind of thing, okay? But what I'd like to point out right now, because we have a prejudice towards this, is just recognize the fact 
that you've not heard this discussion because that is what I call a pink flag. There's a pink flag waving. It's okay. We got a problem here. It's time to um, do some research because we're just borrowing beliefs. You know what I mean? So anyway, go back to the Bible. There's only one verse that Christians use against polygamy, and that is the text. I I think it might be in Titus. If it's not, it's in Timothy. I think it's probably in Titus, where it says, you know, an elder must be the husband of one wife. You familiar with that? Yes. Okay. Well, well, there was a prejudice there, uh, interpretation, okay, because you can take that and turn it around. First of all, you've got to look at that. Is that verse acknowledging that people are practicing polygamy at that time? Because it's addressing this. First of all, let's take a step back. Is that text addressing the subject of polygamy? Everybody agrees on that, Okay. So you can't use that text to prove that they were not practicing polygamy because it's addressing that, okay? And so it was a practice in that day. Now, where in the text does it say that if you are not an elder, uh, do not practice this? It's only talking about elders, right? It's, it's just making a simple statement. Is The apostolic standard is that if you are an elder, um, the, com- the apostolic command is you to have one wife. It doesn't address non-elders, like everybody else. It doesn't talk about that. Christians are twisting that text and trying to apply it to everybody. You see that, Robert? Yes, I do. It's twisting the text. Are we all, about we're not all elders, so, are we? No. And so, you ask yourself this question, where are the approved texts against polygamy apart from that text? I'm saying there aren't any. <laughs> <laughs> but the easy, the easy way to understand that is search for what the Bible says about concubinage that's negative. Because I'm telling you, there's nothing. And that will open that will start to open your eyes and go, I think we have something wrong here. I've got a list now, of pro. Too, got a list of that? pro uh, scripture. A list of pro uh, scripture, but not anti. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, Christians are making a lot of assumptions. Like I said, one of them is that there's a 50-50 ratio. Mm-hmm. But you also see a prophecy in Isaiah 4.1. It's clearly prophetic, unless you are a preterist who believes that all Bible prophecies fulfilled in the distant past. But it's talking about seven uh, women taking hold of uh, a single man and uh, wanting to, uh, you know, be their their wanting them to be their husband. Hmm. However, you interpret that, it's clearly talking about polygamy. And like I said, if you have a futurist interpretation that that you know scripture is unfulfilled then there you go. It's talking about polygamy in the future. Now, whether that's talking about a single man. Even if it's a single man in history, what that's unlikely, okay? Um, Christians are holding up an absolute position on polygamy that polygamy is always wrong and God never approves of it. So, if, if if you have one single historical example against that, now it's not an absolute position anymore. So now you have a quandary. Can you use Scripture to prove that this can't apply to a second person or a third or a fourth? Well, actually, the Bible does talk about polygamy. In the future, it's just Christians are um, they're, they're not aware of that. But that's a different subject. So <clears throat> that's my opinion, by the way. That the Bible does that in the future. You know what okay. I mean? So how did we get on that subject? You asked me a question, right? Uh, I did. I said, mm-hmm. "What does the Bible uh, say about uh, multiple wives?" But what I'd like to say is, you know, we've talked a lot about self-examination on here recently. Everyone needs to look at themselves and just just recognize, you know, I have a personal prejudice against polygamy. Because you do. 
okay, and ask yourself this question, is that based on knowledge or something that you borrowed or heard here or there? I mean, ask yourself this question, have you actually done any research on the subject of polygamy at all? No. Because most Christians never have. They haven't researched that. Most Christians don't even, um, they do very little study. They actually struggle to read the Bible and they, they struggle to pray. Uh, pray and they, they actually struggle not to watch television if you want to really give me a bad time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But don't talk about that, Dave, because everybody's doing it. It makes us look bad. Well, I've come to the realization that multiple wives are okay just in my own mind aside from doing research. I'm glad to hear that uh, the Bible agrees with me. Maybe it's the other way around. Well, Go ahead. Um, I'd like to say something quick about it. Um, I don't know offhand um, any direct scriptures that discuss the saying it's wrong, but I have to look more into it. But I believe that in the Bible, where multiple wives were actually just were seem to be more open about, it, was in the Old Testament. Okay. And you know that was all ended when Jesus came. And I believe that after the Old Testament, it showed that all. I'm not sure if it showed it, but I, I believe that the Christians were were shown as only having one wife. So it was in the Bible, but you know the Old Testament nowadays are not really followed. Just like they no longer do animal sacrifice. Okay. Because everything well, that back then has changed. Well, you agree um, with you agree with Christians that we're under the new covenant. Yeah. See, I, I don't so agree with that. It's pretty okay, major. Does that surprise you? Well, <laughs> a little bit because it says that um, you know when. Jesus said, I am the end of the Old Covenant and the start of a new one, or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so, um, most, well, I'm not sure about how most Christians, but I know a lot of Jehovah's look at the Old Testament as being more more, um, something for historical value, where you can kind of, you can kind of see how God felt about certain things, and you can understand, you know, what made him mad, what made him happy, or, you know, what people did wrong, but we're no longer really required to follow, you know, like the Leviticus rules. Uh -huh. So, I believe that when Jesus ended the covenant, that's when the belief that having multiple wives kind of ended. I don't know an exact scripture, but, you know, it, it seems to me that's kind of when the idea of polygamy kind of went out. Well, yeah. That's a good uh, subject there. Now, I, what I want to say is I do believe in the New Covenant, and uh, I also hold to a complex view that the, the New Covenant was partially intact in the first century, which explains away these different verses where they do address it. There, there's only a few of them, though. And this is called what's called first fruits theology, because I developed my own belief system over a couple decades, so I have terminology for it. And I actually did a podcast on this. It's just not up yet, Robert. Oh. Going into detail on this. Okay, but the what I'm saying is that the, the New Covenant is primarily uh, future, and uh, that's, that's the historical view of, of Judaism. And the reason that I hold to that is because it has to do with the restoration of Israel. Now, there's going to be a new exodus that the Watchtower does not talk about and neither do Christians. And just like the first exodus, that uh, new covenant will be installed, and I actually think it takes place in stages uh, during that general period of time, but it, it generally has to do with the restoration of Israel. Now... See, that is something there where you, the watchtowers, agreeing uh, with what we call 
replacement theology. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but the, they don't talk about this a whole lot, okay? But um, what happened after the first century is that the Roman Catholic Church, they actually claimed to be Israel. A lot of people are hearing this for the first time, that basically um, the Watchtower is doing the same thing. I mean, obviously, there's not some other Israel outside of the Watchtower. You know what I mean? The, the best way to understand this is the Watchtower is fulfilling these biblical prophecies. If you look at the text itself, it's talking about Israel. Okay, So they're not taking the text literally. They're saying that this needs to be understood in a figurative way and that we are Israel. And that's exactly what the Christian Church did up until the 19th century when a new uh, belief system began to manifest called dispensational theology, which actually distinguished between you know, a physical Israel in a quote-unquote church, and they acknowledged that these Old Testament prophecies had to do with this Israel and not themselves, whereas the church before that had said that we are the fulfillment of all these passages. Let me just show you a way that to illustrate how that works, okay? If you go to, like, Ezekiel 47, you'll see a listing of the 12 tribes. You know, I'm going to take this literally. I mean, they're in a, a literal land, and it's in Israel, uh, you know, P Palestine, whatever you want to call that. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a literal river there. And, uh, and and there's allotments for each one of the tribes, you know, a physical land, like when uh, Joshua led the people into Israel. They were given different allotments, a period. Okay, replacement theology, and this is the historical view of the Christian church up until the 19th century, and the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, they will spiritualize that text. Now, let me show you how this works. It actually talks about 12 different tribes. And this is a different listing of tribes from Revelation chapter 7, because in Revelation chapter 7, the tribe of Dan is missing. So in Ezekiel 47, uh, the tribe of Dan is there. And this has to do with restoration, in my opinion, okay? But this is a different method of interpreting Scripture, where you're looking at that and you're going, okay, it's not a literal 12 tribes in a literal land, and the the river is not literal, and the the... the the allotments of land are not literal. It's all spiritual. You see that, Robert? That yes. view? Now, most Christians are unaware that that is the historical view of the church, which I disagree with, because I believe in a literal restoration. Now, in Mormonism, they have a different take on that. They believe that they're Israel as well, but they, they, they talk about a literal restoration with literal land and literal 12 tribes. This is the difference between the Watchtower and Mormonism and Christianity. But it's an interesting um, agreement between the Watchtower and the, and the Christian church historically up until the 19th century and until you had what's called Darbyism. Uh, John Nelson Darby came along, and that's where this teaching originated with it. It's called dispensationalism, and somewhat remarkably... Um, most Christian Protestants in America now hold to this view. It's it's promoted by the media, and it's most have become familiar with, with through what's called left behind type um, belief system. I mean, you've heard of that, Robert, right? Yes, I have. They got the books, the book series. They got the movies and things like that. Right. That's actually the only view that's promoted um, by the media. 
and, and Christian radio, somewhat interestingly. But see, you have to spiritualize the text. So I, I believe in a literal restoration and actually a moving a movement of God's people, which we'll see there in Ezekiel 20, in a literal exodus from point A to point B. You know, so I'm saying that so you can kind of understand, you know, the different beliefs. So when I talk about restoration, I'm talking about more of a literal type thing. Uh, let's take an example in um, Hosea chapter 1. It says that Israel and Judah will be reunited and they will appoint one leader and they will come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. So this is the, a literal restoration of the 12 tribes, okay? And they're appointing a leader. Now this is a problem because I don't think this text is being sufficiently addressed by Jehovah's Witnesses, and we could focus on that a little bit. But then they're, after that, they're actually moving from point A to point B. I mean, you'd have to spiritualize that. I mean, you ask yourself this question, what does that text mean? If they're not literally moving from point A to point B, what does it mean? Can you think of any logical uh, interpretation of that, um, Robert? Hmm. It says they will come up out of the land. So if that's not literal, what do you think that might be, Robert? Do you have any idea, uh, Lewis? Wait, explain it again, what you're saying? Uh, you could look up uh, Hosea chapter 1, verse 11. It says right. they will come up out of the land. They'll separate You know, themselves. move from point A to point B. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. What, what, I mean, if it's not literal, what does it mean? Because it has to have some kind of meaning. Right, that they'll separate themselves somehow. Yeah. Right? Well, you can always come up with something. The problem sure. is trying to prove it, mm -hmm. you know, um... Every, we all have our theories, you know. <laughs> so, um, hey, hey what, um, can you explain to me what what is the theory you were saying about left behind? I mean, I, I've seen I've seen the books and and the and the shows, but I'm not quite familiar with the theory behind it. What that is. Well, it 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 primarily focuses on uh, you know Bible prophecy, and on the, it, on the rapture, mm -hmm. or yeah, um, the classical view is that they hold um, they have a seven year tribulation period, and then yeah. the the quote unquote church is raptured uh, up to heaven before the tribulation begins, and then be God begins to work through the Jews and uh, other people could convert um, the the Jews are the 144,000 uh, they say that these are, are evangelists it doesn't say it anywhere in scripture anywhere and uh, but other people are converted but the main thing is is this when God this is when God finally begins to restore Israel because before that they actually acknowledge um, that he's abandoned them um, now, the different view between dispensationalism and the traditional Christian view, which is called replacement theology, is the replacement belief is that when God abandons them, it's permanent. This is very interesting. Now, it doesn't mean that God doesn't save Jews. Of course, they don't, they don't teach that. That would mean that the Jews would be a cursed race. But um, as a general rule, they're under the wrath of God. And, and the reason this is true, according to what they say... And this is the Roman Catholic teaching, by the way, is that um, they're punished by God and abandoned by God because they rejected the Messiah. So it's a historic 
judgment, which is a corporate judgment, which is actually against a group of people. In other words, his favor is, is not towards them. And a way to express that, his favor has actually shifted from the Jews to the Gentiles. They emphasize favor on the Gentiles. It's, it's something that's a new thing, you know, you know what I mean? It's like the Jews had their time, they had their day, and they failed. And now God is showing favor to the um, the Gentiles, but he's still saving Jews. You know what I mean? Well, do you believe that the people nowadays that call themselves Jews have actual ties to the Jewish people in the Bible? Well, that's a complex subject because it has to do with the word Jew and it has to do with all the words in our language. Um, you have to explain you know, what they mean because that's a very late term, just like the word Gnostic. It's not an ancient term. And I actually believe it was created for a diabolical purpose, to create confusion. So we, ha we well, have to define what we well, mean. I mean um, so, see, here's the thing. Just a second, Lewis. When you watch the media, which I believe you know, I call it the controlled media, you will not hear that word defined. Because let's, let's explain what we mean here. That term can mean uh, someone who is from a certain bloodline. Okay. Uh, you know, that goes back to ancient Judea, or it can be someone who's not from that bloodline, who practices a religion called Judaism, or it can be both. Now, stop, ask yourself this question. Do you ever hear that term defined in popular media, like when you watch the History Channel? Because they, they throw around the word Jew and Gnostic, but, but they don't define these terms. Do you ever hear it defined? Do you hear it defined, Robert? No. No, uh, no. First, yeah. Never. No, it's not because yeah, Jew. The term Jew can it can either be an ethnic group or religion, uh, or it know, can be a combination. Right. Yeah. So usually, so, if you are of the ethnic group, you also are of the religion. Uh huh. So I'll tell you what. You define it for me. What do you mean? What does it mean to you? And then I'll answer the question. Well, when I was asking the question, I mean, I was asking as far as of, of bloodlines. You know, I, I knew. Okay. I know they fell. They fell out in favor, and you know, God allowed Babylon to go in and destroy them. And then, for hundreds of years, like wandered through Europe and the Middle East. You know, do you really believe that the people today who call themselves Jews, you you know, are they really the same people or direct descendants still of the people during biblical times? Because if they're not, then um, what difference does it make about everyone discussing whether or not they still have favor with God, those aren't even the same people. Well, that's actually a complex question, but if you're going to um, you know, phrase it as a yes or no question, I would actually say no. But the reason is, is because um, we, we've lost understanding of uh, who the Jews are. Um, we, I believe that we've been tricked. Um, we've been told that the Jews are uh, have all the skin, they're relatively lower in stature, more along the lines of like a Hispanic type uh, people, and that they tend to have a hooked nose. I mean, they they tend to get stereotyped, and they have they have dark hair. I absolutely don't believe that. Um, you have to understand that that curly, you know, that Satan, the enemy, and anything that is important to the enemy, you know, Satan. Sure. Uh, there's going to be some kind of a um, well, we call it around here a psyop. Right. <laughs> But there's going to be a false representation, you know. So you'll have, uh, you know, a false Armageddon, a false, a false Christ, uh, a fa even a false Antichrist, 
false Israel, false Jews. Uh, run down the line. Anything that's important. Um, as far as there'll be as, some, a as far as the media is concerned, could you explain kind of the omission uh, situation uh, and how that uh, tends to point to uh, a cover up or a psyop? I guess if uh, you want to call it that. Well, what? Um, Christians have a hard time with this, but um, the Bible shows favor. I'm going to use the word Jew. I, I prefer the word Judean or, or, or Judaite. And those are technically not identical, by the way, but this is more like precise scholarly terminology, so it's not really good for a podcast. But I'm just I'm going to use that uh, term. Uh, ask me that question again, what you just said. Um, when you notice an omission as far as the media is concerned, that tends to point to something. Uh, when they completely oh yeah well the best way to notice this is the way that the word Jew is used in the nightly news mm-hmm. you'll notice it is never defined no never absolutely never so there's, there's clearly an, you know either they're stupid okay that's obvious if they never define it because it needs to be defined okay or, or they're uh, there's an agenda or they're stupid and there's an agenda but actually um, it's very unlikely that there's your stupid and agenda although it's theoretically possible because you could have you could have the elite that are controlling the media, and you know you just have the talking heads, and they just kind of you just dispense the propaganda. So then the omission itself would be a psyop, possibly. Oh yeah. <laughs> but um, ask yourself this question: um, you know whether you believe in such a thing as Illuminati. Uh, but if we believe in Satan, would he be um, sufficiently motivated to cover up? who is a Jew? Now, what I was trying to say is that the Bible actually teaches that the Jew has favor. This is a lost concept in both the Kingdom Hall and um, in Christianity. And you can illustrate this by simply going to Romans chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul asks a question, um, what advantage is there then in being a Jew? And this is why we have to you know, interpret define the term Jew it becomes very important but whatever a Jew is he's presenting a foreign concept to the modern mind because we've all been influenced by this culture where everyone is equal and there's no such thing we don't have hierarchy and things like that but he answers the question what advantage is there then in being a Jew he says much in every way you see now I'm saying that what a Jew was was someone who practiced the Torah but if you don't believe that, then it, it would be what most other Christians believe. And I, I, I say I'm not denying this, but a Jew has to do with bloodline. But if it, is, it does have to do with bloodline, then he's saying that these people, um, they have an advantage over the non-Jews. You see how we don't talk about that? Now, mm-hmm. the thing about that text, it's very simple. There's it, nothing complex about it. He's simply saying that one group... Because, see, he's writing... Who are the Romans that he's writing to? He's writing to... Um, Jews and non-Jews. You know, the word gets mistranslated as Gentiles, which is a, you know, a Latin term. That's a Latin word, you know what I mean? That's not a good word, okay? So, I mean, he's writing to two groups of people. Uh, This is very clear when you study the Book of Romans. He's not writing to one group. He's writing to two groups. And that's why he says in uh, Romans chapter 2 that those who do not keep the Torah, they will be judged by their conscience. They They don't observe the Torah. See, mm-hmm. and we don't think along these lines. So when we read that, we think of unregenerate believers. He's not talking about that. If you go, if you look at Acts chapter fifteen, you will clearly see 
the Bible doesn't speak anything against people who are observing the law of Moses in Acts 15. Now, we think it does other places. I'm not talking about other places. I'm only talking about Acts 15, because there's something very profound going on there. He's saying that these Gentiles, whoever they are, you know, James, they're not required to keep the law of Moses. Now, it says that specifically in the text. But um, what Christians are not noticing is that the other Christians... They go right on practicing the law of Moses, and that's permitted. It's, it, you, no one can prove that that is addressed in the council because there's no evidence. So if you were to base everything solely upon that early church council, you would have to come to the conclusion that um, James didn't have a problem with people keeping the Torah because there's no evidence there. There's no internal evidence. Now, people don't believe that, Okay. Because that's in complete opposition to this view that we're well, we're all under the new covenant now. Because the, the new covenant is in opposition to the old covenant. Okay, mm-hmm. so they don't believe that. So what Christians believe? Well, elsewhere in the Bible it says that you know we're not supposed to keep the law of Moses. Uh, there's problems with that because if you look at um, Acts 21, people were accusing Paul, who actually said he was a Pharisee. We don't really process that either. Uh, he actually said that he went out of his way to prove that he was keeping the law of Moses to silence these accusers. Hmm. And you will notice that Christians do not talk about that text because it um, it does not validate their belief system. And, and what you find over and over again in Christianity, in, in any religion, is that you know the things that don't go along with what we believe, we, we don't discuss them. And the reason I point this out is because when you point them out, it's a self-evident fact that nobody's talking about it. Yeah. So this raises questions. Why aren't we talking about these things? For instance, in the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, uh, why isn't there a discussion uh, about the fact that, that God never advocated, the, in a specific text, the building of a kingdom hall? Because mm-hmm. when you point this out, it's, it's obvious that this is not true. You have to acknowledge this. Because you can't go to a text and say, well, here's where he did, because there is no text. So that means if you say that your belief is based solely on the Bible, well, there's an exception to that. Is there any other exceptions? Yeah. There always is. You know what I mean? Like I said before, absolutes are very difficult to uphold because they have to be true at every point along the line. That, that's a real problem for a human being because human beings are subject to failure. And the, the, you know, the, the, uh, the governing body of the Watchtower, I mean, they've admitted that you know, they've made mistakes, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. They're not claiming infallibility. I had know? a question for Lewis. Uh, yeah. Obvi- there's obvious, we believe there's obvious contradictions in the Bible. And uh, I was just going to ask Lewis, is there any that stand out according to Jehovah's Witnesses? Uh, contradictions yeah. in the Bible? Is there? Boy, you got some. That- <laughs> okay, just a second here now. Do they believe the Bible's completely infallible? Robert, there's- do you believe there's contradictions in the Bible? I do. Wow. <laughs> now, did you well, know that. Just a I second, Robert. Did you know that most Christians will label you as a liberal and they'll put you in a in a in a in a in a, in a black hole that you're I, never going to get out of? I wasn't called. You a, change your opinion. I wasn't called a liberal, but I was. Uh, the discussion was with my parents actually, and uh, they didn't approve. They uh, tend to think otherwise. So, did you want to say something, Lewis? Well, I think a lot of times, a lot of what people will call contradictions. Might just be you have the wrong understanding of what it is they're trying to. <laughs> That's the way they try to. Or it could be that it could be a situation where 
you know, it's something that hasn't been really revealed, the, the actual meaning of what it is. I see. Well, I'm going to say this real quick. Um, you've got problems everywhere uh, mm-hmm. across the board. Um, they're fundamental problems. Um, I've never even said this in a, in, in a podcast before. But there's no such thing as a Bible. Now, I want you to just stop and think about that. And you're not going to uh, be able to figure out, you know, necessarily, where is Dave going with this? Right. What is he talking about? There's no such thing as a Bible. Think about that, though, okay? I'm going to show that there's no such thing as a Bible. Well, you can't prove that there's such a thing. Now, people believe this kind of thing. Now, I said before that, you know, the in the first century, they didn't have a Bible, Okay. Now, if you use the definite article in English, you know, the word the, it tends to point. Okay, so I'm not using um, that right now, but when I say A, I'm, I'm talking about singularity, obviously. But did you know that we have more than one Bible, Robert? I, I Who knows this thing is a Bible? <laughs> right. Now, everyone wants to claim that, you know, this is my Bible, a Bible, the Bible, people that support the King James Bible. And if you're um, a king or... Jehovah's Witnesses, you would um, have the same mentality because you would support the, you know, the um, New World Translation. That's what it's called. Yeah, okay, but we're not going to, we're not going to, we're not going to pick on the Watchtower here. We're going to talk about institutional Christianity. Okay. Okay. You got a, you got a huge problem here. Okay, because historically the Christian Church has been split, and actually have terminology for this. You know, the Great Schism. Uh, between the Eastern Church and the uh, and the Western Church, and what I've pointed out over and over again is that in uh, Western society, um, I actually say through social engineering is very Western centric, and I'm saying it's that way for a diabolical purpose. Mm-hmm. I've talked about how the Parthian Empire, which actually defeated the Roman Empire, according to what we're told by Orthodox historians, uh, it was um, a contemporaneous to the Roman Empire, and they were very powerful. You won't even hear about them. Because there's... Remember I talked about, Robert, how in order for propaganda to be effective, it must be simple? I do. So what they do is they give you a simple view of history. They do this with every country, by the way. No matter what country you're in, they give you your national heroes and these powerful stories that are supposed to produce patriotism. Because I talked about before in the Nuremberg Trials... um, the Nazis said, and I agree, <laughs> Dave's agreeing with the Nazis, <laughs> that um, patriotism is the number one method uh, to get the people to follow along with your agenda. Okay? So I'm saying that this is always done, and actually, nations have actually been uh, um, upfront about this to some degree all through history because they have actually admitted that they have created propaganda about war. Okay? They don't tell you the truth about war. And they actually t- they come out come out and tell you that because you you don't need to know because um it, it, it's some degree stop and think about this. Is it necessary to tell the public everything about what we're doing? No. You see that? But this is good because we're start we got a starting point here. Um they're lying to you at least about something. And they're actually admitting it so uh, is there anything else they're lying to you about? Well, that's a big subject. You know what I mean? So, um, where, where are we at here? Um, bring me back to uh, what we were talking about. 
I can do it myself. But <laughs> okay, we're we're talking about one Bible. Yeah, we were. Let's go back to that. That's great. Okay. Okay, in the Eastern Church, they have a different Bible. It's called the Septuagint. Now they believe that this Bible is inspired infallibly. Uh, they don't believe this. Well, I was talking about you know Western centric propaganda. So yes, um, you, in Christianity, and I've talked before about theological propaganda, which Christians don't even think about. Um, if you heard that, you'd be thinking about it for the first time. Somebody's creating theological propaganda. Well, well at least you're thinking about it for the first time, because I know you haven't talked about it before. So you're not an expert on that, are you? No, I'm not. Okay. <laughs> but um, they, there is theological propaganda directed at, at we'll call them Western Christians, um, to ignore the Eastern Church. Because, well, things get more complicated then. Because they want you to believe absorb a belief system. They want this for everybody, okay? So in order to make that more effective, they, they just simplify everything. Now, it's self-evident, and I've said this a number of times, you can sit in, in, a, in a church for 50 years, and that pastor will never mention Eastern Orthodoxy or the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint, according to scholars, they actually say it was the Bible. Now, that's technically they're wrong because what is the Bible? The Bible is the Old Testament and New Testament in a canon of 66 books um, according to a Protestant mindset okay? because it varies from group to group. Now it's interesting, I was going to point this out and we could deal with this, but the, the Watchtower is actually following along with that canon. Now that's a very interesting subject right there. We'll maybe come back to that, okay? Because what's the basis for doing that? Because they're following Christianity. They're following Protestant Christianity. Because, you know, you have the, um, you have the Syrian Orthodox Church, and you have the uh, Ethiopian uh, Orthodox Church. And, uh, you know, they have, they have different canons. They're not all the same. It mainly hey, has to do... Go ahead, Lewis. Hey, what exactly do you mean? What, what is the, the Eastern Christianity? You're saying that you have a different book or, or a different version of the, of the Bible? Yeah, well, or according to what belief? we're told about history, um, the Eastern Orthodox Church was, was affiliated with, like, the Byzantine Empire, uh, and uh, it was centered around uh, Constantinople, you know, which was Eastern okay. Turkey, which is modern-day Istanbul. And that was the center for, um, well, during the time of Constantine, that was actually the center for, for Christianity, you see. So yeah, it, okay. Yeah. And so it was centered around there, and uh, then later it shifted. Go ahead. Wait. Okay, so just just because it was centered around there, you're, you're saying that the belief is different over there, or mm -hmm. they have a, a different book they they look at. They have they have uh, they have different uh, beliefs. Now, are, you, are you familiar with the Septuagint at all? No, that's why I was okay. asking. Okay, what the Septuagint is. Um, and scholars say that this was the quote-unquote Bible of the uh, of the apostles. Uh, obviously, it didn't include the New Testament. Now, it did have the Apocrypha. Everybody knows what the Apocrypha is. But it, what it is, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Okay? The Greek translation of the Hebrew. And uh, so, it, you know, it's still present today, and that's the... The Bible that they use, and they added the New Testament later to the whole thing. You said your preference, Dave. I actually now all these um, every text has corruption problems. And I hold to a very high view of Scripture, 
So I'm going to make the claim that Hebrew is a divine, divinely approved language, and any time that you translate it into any language, you're corrupting it. When I say that, sometimes we talk about corruption in a lateral sense, sometimes we talk about it in a vertical sense. I'm saying that this is God's opinion. The slightest violation of anything is, is, is a corruption. Mm -hmm. God sees everything as either perfect or imperfect. He doesn't have a middle ground like humans do, where you have you know, black, gray, and white. He doesn't think that way. That's why he calls things, you know, this is a lie, and all men are liars, because men are liars because they, they speak a lie at least one point in their life or something, you know what I mean? Sure. Or at least enough to qualify as liars. And yet other times, God distinguishes between the wicked and the good. This is a lateral comparison, and talks about the liars and, you know, the truth-tellers, and uh, those are the righteous people. But see, when you compare with God, we're all, we're all sinners, we're all liars, and God is the only one that speaks the truth, right? Yeah. Remember I talked about how Jesus said, uh, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. That's what he was doing. He was focusing on the lateral, or excuse me, the vertical comparison. Normally the Bible focuses on a horizontal comparison, you know, distinguishes between those who lie and those who don't, because the Bible actually teaches that if you practice lying, um, You'll be condemned by God. I'm talking about in the future. How you, however you perceive, um, you know, hell or the future state of man. You know what I mean? Okay. So here we run into a problem because the church is divided historically between the Eastern and Western Church. They have different Bibles. Now, see what we do. Um, you know, we join a group uh, and we say, well, this group is the right one. Uh, everyone wants to believe this. We've talked about how Christians believe that um, that the church they go to is the best church in town. Because um, if I thought there was a better church, I'd be going there. You know. So therefore, it's called reasoning in a circle. And they do the same thing with denominations. You know, why did I go to this seminary? And because uh, I think this is one is better. And uh, God put me here. Because everyone wants to believe that God is guiding them. Can we just admit that? Right. We talk about people being delusional. By the way, Robert, I looked up the word delusionality. Yes. That's actually a word. Okay. <laughs> and I actually surprised myself because I use these words. I'm going, I've never used that word before. And I look it up and I go, that's actually a word. I go, uh -huh. where did I get that word? The theory is, is that the Holy Spirit actually does this. Okay. Isn't that interesting? It is. It, you know, it's just, just because we believe that kind of thing. It just, you know, you don't have to like find it in a book somewhere. It can just be given to you because a lot of times you, you get you distrust yourself you go well, you know I, I think I made that word up you know? but no it's a legitimate word okay so anyway we have our, our well you know we don't use the Septuagint okay now we, we use all these different terms um, they're like monolithic terms now when we say the Bible that's a monolithic term we're not even thinking let me give you an example of that every single time that Christians use the word Christianity they're not thinking because they're using a monolithic term, that's not biblical. Because the biblical um, framework is to have sex, S-E-C-T-S. -E we can't process that term because those are actually different religions or sub-religions, which were advocated, uh, well, here I'm staying, in the Bible, you know what I mean? <laughs> but, you know, in the first century. They didn't problem with that. And they were in opposition to each other. And we don't use that word today. What we use in Christianity, we use words like cults, 
and denominations. That's what people use, cults and denominations, and we, we ignore the biblical word sect. You know what I mean? Okay. It's, it's not used very often. Well, that's actually the biblical word. Okay, so, so we like to do this to make things more simple. So Christians believe that they belong to the one true religion. Okay, but whenever time that they say that, they're assuming that all these different groups uh, fall under this monolithic term. You see? Now, I, I've talked about this before. I don't want to belabor it too much. But you can easily make the case that, well, obviously we've got more than one Bible. Because you can look at every translation is a Bible. Now, here's the thing. Well, here's your running problems. Who's the authority to infallibly establish what a Bible is? Is Let's ask yourself this question. Is a Bible any translation? Because you notice that sometimes we use it in that sense. Because hmm. we... we we get uncomfortable with people who claim that, you know, the King James Bible is the only inspired Bible from God and everything else is corrupt and uh, so we should use the King James Bible. And so we, we approach these people and we try to get them to think rationally and we say, uh, which Bible are you talking about? Well, when we do that, we're affirming our belief that each translation is actually a Bible. You see, so we need to be consistent and define what do we mean when we're talking about the Bible? Because at other times people talk about the Bible as if it's a monolithic term. You see that, Robert? Yes. We're being inconsistent because now the reason we have to do this is you have to use uh, technical terms in order to communicate effectively. Um, Non-Adamic people, excuse me, <laughs> you want to bleep that one out? Sure. <laughs> Non-academic people. <laughs> They don't discuss complex subjects, and so they don't use um, uh, complex terminology. That means that they're they're not using precise terminology. They don't think it's necessary, but in order to um, speak effectively, you have to use precise terminology to communicate effectively. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter what they believe. Um, that's true, because things get complex, and, and the more complex they get, you have to, to use more precision and. And precise terminology. Um, we, we, we use the term lay people, and uh, we, we acknowledge that was a negative term. They don't think this is necessary, and they're not motivated to study these terms. And one of the reasons they, they're not motivated is because um, their pastor is actually not that familiar with them, because there's a big drop-off between a theologian and a pastor, because they have insufficient learning and schooling. But the pastors, uh, they don't talk about this either. I mean, they kind of uh, downplay it, you know. Well, you don't need, you know, lose all these terms because they don't, they don't use them themselves, and they don't try to teach them to the people. So the people assume that we don't need to to, to, to learn these. Well, it's fine if you want to stay on that level of communication, right. but if you want to move off of that, you're going to have to use precise terminology, which means you're going to have to learn it. Okay. So anyway, you know, what do we mean by when we talk about one Bible? Okay. Well, it's very clear that the the Septuagint is it is it it's a different Bible. So now we have this problem. If we just simplify everything, and this is incredible simplification, let's take all the other Bibles besides the Septuagint, and let's say that those are one Bible. See that massive simplification? Okay. Okay? So now like, there's like two Bibles. Now, I said before that the Western Church ignores the Septuagint. It's almost, they don't understand that there's another Bible. Okay, so I could go in a lot of different directions on this, but I want to address what you said about contradictions in the Bible because most conservative Christians believe that if you say there's a single contradiction in the Bible anywhere, then you are 
either a liberal liberal or you're not even a Christian at all because you're <laughs> you're rejecting uh, the uh, inspired Word of God. You familiar with that interpretation? Yes. yes. Now, there's a way to prove that there are contradictions, but it's a little bit different than what they're thinking. There's a consistent pattern in the Septuagint, uh, with you know, with chronologies, and also with numbers, numbering. There's there's a consistent difference right down the line. Now, when a when a you know quote unquote Protestant or Western Christian is hearing this. He's hearing this for the first time. Yeah. He he, did, he didn't know this. Now this is not a problem to him because he'll simply say, "Well, the Septuagint is wrong." You know what I mean? Yeah. But notice that has he done any research into this subject? You know, because everything's the same. I mean, if you have not researched something, you're you're, you're a neophyte. So you your your opinion is not authoritative. Okay. That means that you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Guess what? People have an emotional attachment to certain things, and they're right. going to voice their opinion anyway. But what I'm trying to say is, I really, you know, I um, I value um, each person as a you know as a human soul, but uh, I don't value their opinion because it's uneducated. But they don't have that view. They want to believe. It has to do with security, you know, um, relieving themselves of anxiety because mm-hmm. if um, if there's contradictions in the Bible, then um, you could have some potential anxiety manifest manifesting in, in the background. We don't want that, so we have all these different ways of suppressing that and just moving forward as if nothing's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be the most logical way to approach it, right? <laughs> well, this is actually it what wouldn't be. Do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. I'm going to shut this door here because I had this problem last night of talking to. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I mean, you there. Just put it this way, okay? There's there's no authoritative um, person or or council that can determine for us whether the Septuagint is a superior Bible or inferior. There isn't anybody. Uh, that's because we don't have um, people who have the same um, gifting as the apostles. Now. Uh, the Watchtower actually agrees with this because they don't believe that there was inspired prophets um, you know, beyond the first century. They hold to a different view. They look at the, 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 the governing body of the Watchtower itself is an inspired prophet. Collectively, the elders are a prophet. You can see this in their own literature. So that's the only sense where they believe there's an inspired prophet. They are the inspired prophet. Now I, I know their their doctrines, and, and you know that's that's not wrong, you know. And uh, so um, you know you have different views in Christianity, uh, but what I'm trying to say is that um, it's it's obvious that we don't have anybody, you know, authoritative voice to actually establish a, a church council uh, that would determine. Uh, a canon of scripture. We need to hear about this, discuss, because people don't talk about it. Right. You know what I mean, for instance, in Christianity, you have a lot of traditional Christians. They hold to what's called um, uh, it's a big term called cessationism, mm-hmm. and, and it's kind of comical because I actually believe these terms are created by Illuminati. You know, it's how they have all these isms. You know, yes. it's kind of comical. But what that basically means is that uh, that these gifts. 
these so-called sign gifts that they seized with the apostles. And I actually hold to that view to some degree. I hold to a middle position okay, between that and Pentecostals. Because there's an element of truth there because there was a big drop-off. But see, if you're admitting that, you're being inc- inconsistent because you're, you're, you're believing that God infallibly inspired these Roman Catholic Church councils to develop your canon of... Um, well, your inspired canon. Because ask yourself this question, Robert. Yes. Do these Christians believe that um, God inf- infallibly inspired this church council and it was um, inspired canon? They Correct. do believe. You they know do. why? Because you won't hear any discussion about um, the possibility that there was actually 65 books in the canon because the um, the book of Esther is not present in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those are the oldest extant manuscripts that we have. I'm just telling you, you know, all the research I've done, you don't hear the 65 or 67 discussion. And yet, shockingly, um, and this it was, this is one of the primary ways that uh, I, I used to infallibly prove that Christians don't understand their own uh, religion, mm-hmm. and they're just absorbing beliefs without any critical thinking. There has never been a church council that's developed the Protestant canon. It, it doesn't exist. So what you can do to prove that, like I said before, is go to a Wikipedia article. And the only reason I say Wikipedia because it's it's right out there in the open. Hmm. People are not even doing research because they're not even thinking about the most basic fundamental things. But there never was a church council, and that uh, canon was not officially codified until the year 1825. So I think uh, the Wikipedia article, something along the lines of like Protestant canon, Mm -hmm. and you'll actually see that. Okay. Okay, you got to remember in the King James Bible, you know the sixteen eleven version that went through different uh, translations versions. Well, it seems like that could be pretty important to most Christians. Whether it was book or books left out of the Bible, and there was debate over that. Absolutely, yeah. But uh, in the original King James, they they actually had the Apocrypha, okay. so they had a different canon. So that's why when you talk to these King James-only people, it's like, well, which King James are you talking about? Which is the inspired version? Because you'll find invariably these people don't believe in the Apocrypha. They they usually think that that's um, from Satan or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Which is not the Protestant view, by the way. These are um, supplementary books that were worthy of reading, but not on the same level. They were on a lower level. But, like I said, scholars say that... Um, <clears throat> You know, the quote-unquote Bible, if you're going to use that term at all, of the apostles, was actually the Septuagint. Okay. And the Apocrypha was in the Septuagint. Just like it was in the King James Bible. Somebody's got some background. Yeah, I'm not sure what that is. Are you still there, Lewis? Yeah, I'm still here. Oh, hey. Uh, I know it's getting kind of late, your East Coast time. Um, uh, Just wondering, Dave, uh, could you really quick, because I kind of promised this to Lewis, or I mentioned it to him before... Uh, could you address the scripture at the end of Revelation? No, what what scripture is it? Uh, at twenty two fourteen. What version are you using? Ha I'm not going to say. Uh, this is a. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to say. I think it's the. <laughs> uh, the earlier version I was using. I just grabbed a Bible. It, the Christians don't like this version, but. It, well, you know, yeah. The main thing you have to understand there, it's only talking about that one book. Okay. Christians try to use that unilaterally for all scripture. I see. You'll you'll see them doing this. That's an error. Mm-hmm. So 
It's just simply making a simple statement, and I take it at face value. Um, but it cannot be taking um, – you've got to be careful there because um, – okay, I, I see your point. It can't be talking about – well, this is kind of a broad subject, okay? <laughs> um, Lewis is not familiar with um, what I call the, you know, like a diaspora mindset. Oh. Uh, that means dispersion. These are biblical terms. You see them in James one one. That we're actually in a period of uh, inferior period of probation. We're waiting for restoration. And this is why we're not under the new covenant. Uh, we don't have the authority that we, what we think we do. But anyway, the reason I say that is because um, I'm making the claim, and and I'm saying that nobody can infallibly disprove this because we don't have enough information before the 14th century to be pontificating about any of these things. Um, but um, I'm saying the original language uh, was Aramaic, and uh, but I, I want to emphasize because a lot of people wouldn't think I would do this is that there's no question whatsoever that God sovereignly ordained that the Greek language would be used for the text of what we our modern you know New Testament because that's what happened. <laughs> you know what I mean? You understand that why I would think that way. You know, as a determinist, where everything comes from the hand of God, right, Robert? That's right. Okay, now, the way that you can see that is that the ancient Kony Greek, or classical Greek, that's what it's called, which is um, largely a dead language, It, uh, depending on your perspective, people will have different opinions on that. Um, but it's, it's a very, very expressive language. And it arrived at a curious period in, in history, and I believe that it, it, if you look at the way it arrived, it was – God was behind all that. He was preparing that. That was the language that he had chosen. He, he makes preparations ahead of time, and if you look at the handiwork of God in history, you'll actually see these kind of things. Because things happen slowly in the background. You know, God builds up these empires, and then he uses them at a critical moment point in history. Well, first he has to build them. They don't appear overnight, you see. So there's evidence um, in history that God was sovereignly working and preparing the Greek language, um, which is very, very expressive, like I said, to be used for what I call a diaspora Bible. A diaspora Bible. In the diaspora, you don't have perfection anywhere. People just assume that because um, that's all they—that's all they know, you know. Um, they've never been confronted with perfection, so they—they they settle for for mediocrity, and that's what our Bibles are. Now, I, I want to say that you know, when I say mediocrity, you tend to think of something in the middle, halfway between the truth and the error. And the Bible's not like that at all. The, your Bible is trustworthy, but it's—it's it's far from being, you know, <laughs> to say the least, infallible text. It has significant corruption problems. You got to remember that the Septuagint um, is the text, apparently. Well, let's just put it this way: uh, Christian scholars. Okay, I know enough about the Watchtower to um, to say that they would agree with Christian scholars that the the so-called New Testament text um, it's actually the Septuagint that's quoting. Um, these are, these are the, the messianic passages typically that refer to Christ. And it's quoting the Old Testament, okay? A Christians and uh, the Watchtower would agree that that's 
it's quoting the Septuagint. You see that? Because our modern Bibles are not based on the Septuagint. They're based on the Masoretic text, which we're told was not developed until the 8th and 9th century, according to the chronology that they give us, okay? So, our modern Bibles, now I'm talking about you know, the Old Testament here, not the New Testament, obviously. But our modern Bibles are based on 8th and 9th century manuscripts, according to what they tell us. It's not based on the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it's not based on the Septuagint. So, the, the New Testament text that you have, according to what scholars say, and the Watchtower as well, it's quoting the Septuagint. This is very important. I mean, I pointed out this a number of times, okay? But Christians, they, they're not aware of this, okay? So that alone is, is a huge um, factor in starting to, you know, educate yourself about the Septuagint. Because God is um, involved with all this. So why, did, why is this happening the way it is? Because you've got to factor God in here somehow, you know what I mean? Maybe we need to take a second look at the Septuagint instead of ignoring it, because I'm telling you that's what Christians are doing. They're simply ignoring it. Now, the Watchtower, I hate to you know, be negative or anything like that, but they're following the same thinking. Okay? Um, and what that thinking is, is that you have what's called textual variance. And um, I'm not certain, but I think that, yeah, the uh, the New World Translation, it just like you know modern uh, Christian Bibles, it will it will t- talk about these little textual variants, you know the most common ones over in you know in the in the sidebar somewhere, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it will mention you know like Septuagint or a lot of times it will say LXX probably that means seventy because supposedly according to tradition there were seventy translators, or it will say you know the Masoretic text it's it's, it's abbreviated to MS, you know, yeah. and there's other ones too like there's um, the Septuagint Pentateuch, which has significant uh, corruption problems, but again, it differs with the Masoretic text. Okay? That, what I'm trying to say is that what we're basically doing is just um, accepting the Masoretic text without any critical thinking. You, I mean, you know for a fact that the average Christian, he's not um, sitting down and studying the significant differences between the Masoretic text and the Septuagint. So, <laughs> Our Bibles are based on the assumption, here we go, what is your Bible? Well, your Bible, if you want to use that terminology, is based on the massive assumption that the Masoretic text is superior to the Septuagint. Do you know this is virtually impossible to prove? But if you were going to prove it, how would you do that? Stop and think about that. You would have to have an inspired individual, which the Watchtower and... Most Christians, unless they have a cultic kind of mindset, they're acknowledging we don't have these people. Well, then why are you doing these things? See that? Yeah. Why are you believing in this um, infallible conclusion that there's precisely 66 books, while at the same time you're acknowledging that we don't have an inspired man at the level of the apostles? Hmm. Now, when we, ever, when we ever do acknowledge that, we always end up in some kind of a weird cult. You know, Joseph Smith is our inspired man. We gather around him, and then we get this weird belief system, right? But apart from these cultic systems, 
We don't believe these things. What I'm trying to point out, it's inconsistent to maintain that God infallibly inspired um, this church council, which came up with 66 books. Um, at some point along the line, I mean, I'm, I'm making this as oversimplification, by the way. I, I'm, I'm, you know, just you know, we talk about, you know, from in order for propaganda to be effective, it has to be simple. I'm actually doing the same thing. I'm actually telling you, because this this subject is more complex. Sure. Okay. So, because I already said there was no church council. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, the the process of how all this happened, it, it's it's complex historically. It's not really good for podcasting unless you focus on the whole process and just stay on the subject. I just want to make people aware of that because if someone looks at what I'm saying critically, I want them to know that, yeah, I know more about this subject. I know it's not simple. I'm just trying to communicate it simply, you know, because actually most people, they don't want to hear all that complex stuff. It's not the right question for me to ask at the the end of a podcast or near the end. Well... That's the thing is when you ask these questions, you don't know if it's complex or not. True. See, you find out that it is. So that's basically the answer for that. I mean, I could say more, but Lewis, Lewis. Yeah, I'm listening. You okay? Yeah. Um, Where is that scripture again? You says Revelations 11. What? Um, Go ahead. (laughs) It's a little late for Lewis. uh, 19, if anyone takes words away from the book of prophecy... Yeah, yeah, okay. This this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in his holy city. I think what's talking about there is somebody who's doing that for a diabolical purpose. It's not talking about translating the text. You know what I mean? Sure. And I wouldn't have a problem with that. Now, the Illuminati, uh, they do things like that. And no one can prove that they didn't, because the only way you would do that is to have some inspired individual beyond the first century because um, we don't actually have the ability to prove or disprove that a single word in a single sentence was not removed for a diabolical purpose. And the reason we, we can't do that is because the Bible passed through the medieval era, hmm. however you perceive that. And during that era, we lost control of the physical text because there was no middle class. And um, even if you think that um, there was good people that were running the show at the top, you still can't prove it anyway because we don't have enough information. You're just assuming that God preserved it. And uh, you've got about one to three uh, you know, passages in the Bible to try to prove this, and I don't think any of them do. They're too ambiguous. For instance, the Bible does not talk about the Bible anywhere. And the Bible does not even define what Scripture is. It, it's, it, it addresses that there's Scripture. It also doesn't define what inspiration is. This is a man-made definition. It does not define uh, inspiration. So when we say the inspired Scriptures, what's your definition of, of inspiration? You know, because there's more than one, and the Bible never gives you one. Hmm. <laughs> okay? Right. Um, but, you know, it does talk about, Peter talked about the scriptures. Uh, he, he acknowledges that what, what Paul was writing was scripture. But does it tell us what these scriptures are? No. Just mentions them in passing. So what is scripture and what isn't scripture? Good question. Okay? 
Because I'm actually saying that the Hebrews not did that they did not have a canon and they didn't have a Bible. Now some people will disagree with that. Okay. But I actually believe that's you know the scholarly view in Christianity. Uh, lay people assumed that they had a Bible and they had uh, a canon. You know, the Hebrews, sure. the Jews, whatever you want to call You'd them. Assume, but, yeah. I, you know, they assume a lot of things, you know. <laughs> people would. Uh, it makes things more comfortable. You know, simplify things and um, makes it more palatable and uh, uh, things go easier. You know what I mean? <laughs> sure. Take this cough syrup and uh, swallow it. <laughs> You'll feel better. Um, but things are actually more complex. So, yeah. So there's no way to actually prove that anybody has um, replaced the apostles um, because everybody has error. So it, it comes down to the issue of trust. Uh, so it really comes down to, who, who, well, who's the best? Okay, we're, we're all, none of us are perfect, so who's the best? Mm-hmm. You know? Now, Lewis probably believes that the Watchtower is... And I uh, actually have my own opinions because I do think that, you know, one group is better than another. But what I will say is something you don't hear anywhere, and I've said it many times, that you have corruption problems, you know, everywhere. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I, I think that's where um, faith comes into play. You really think God has a hand in, in you know, in, in God and making sure that his idea and his word is, is preserved. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, like especially during medieval times, yeah, the middle class, the lower class had no access to it at all. So the entire Bible could have been changed significantly. But was it done or was it not done? Again, it's all based on you know just faith. Right. That's where it all mm-hmm. kind of boils down to. And, but that's, that's important. You say faith because you can't actually prove these things. Yeah, <laughs> that gets a little bit scary and, there. And, and, you know, and what you're also saying is similar to what Muslims say why they can't translate the the Quran out because. So they say that it must stay in its original preserved language. Yeah, you know, I've heard that's that. actually um, that's kind of my view. Uh, but you have to translate it to to communicate it. So you're going to have mediocrity. It's actually approved by God to get the message out. Yeah. Just like if, I, if if Jesus came back, he wouldn't speak in Elizabethan language. You know, archaic <laughs> King James. He would speak in the language of the people, and that's one of the um, the primary reasons why you could readily assume that he you know he was bilingual or trilingual <laughs> that he was speaking uh, Aramaic that was the language of the people because that's the way you want to get the message out that, that that's why I use the word you know Jesus oh. just when I say oh, the word Jesus oh. everybody knows what I'm talking about if I use it Yehoshua they say um, are you talking about Jesus they got to ask me a question you know they're not really sure go ahead what exactly was Aramaic Aramaic Aramaic, Aramaic is a, is a sister language of Hebrew. It has a lot of commonalities. Uh, eventually, uh, classical uh, Hebrew became a dead language, and uh, it basically was replaced by Aramaic. Oh, so, so Aramaic, you know, like in the Roman in the Roman Empire, and eventually Latin replaced um, Aramaic. Go ahead. <clears throat> no, when you kept saying, I thought, I thought you were saying, so it's not related to like Arabic. No, no, no. Okay. I kept getting mixed. All right, so it was like a a different dialect of Hebrew. Okay, That's what you're kind of saying? Uh, well, it was. It's distinguished from Hebrew, but it's it, they have a lot of. There's a lot of overlap. It's a, it's a it's a it's a distinct language with a lot of commonalities. Hebrew and, and Aramaic are, are two distinct languages. 
but they have a lot of commonalities. So I'm assuming that Aramaic probably had a lot of influence in the Greek. Um, the Roman language, since they were side by side for the longest. To a, in a qualified sense, I would say, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, so he probably would have spoken that language. Yeah, that's what was spoken around that time. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. Well, uh, I know you're... It's getting kind of late where you're at, Lewis. Well, let's, let's get together again. It was a good discussion. Okay. Thank you, man. Sounds good. I'll talk to you soon. Take care, Lewis. All right. Talk to you. All right. Bye. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.